Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, Simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we're the Minimalists. Well, we are short one musketeer today. Although we've got Malabama here. I'm still here. Hi, everybody. <laughs> uh, you've probably noticed if you're watching the video version of the podcast, there's this giant void here. That's because TK couldn't make it in. In fact, we rescheduled this. If you're a fan of the Patreon live stream, you already know this because... Uh, TK ended up in the hospital this week. Um, he had an intestinal blockage. Mm. It turns out Ryan is right when he said TK is full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, stars. But don't worry, Alabama's too soon, Josh. <laughs> Too soon. Malabama's been working on her baritone, so uh, yes. she'll be doing her impersonation of TK Coleman throughout the podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was really close. Yeah, I, I thought he was in the room for a moment. <laughs> so thoughts, prayers, and love all go out to TK Coleman. You can send him your love on Twitter and Instagram. Let him know that you're thinking about him. Hopefully he'll be back next week. Uh, we did get a report this morning that he seems to be doing a bit better. Yeah. Uh, he had to go to the emergency room and then he was admitted to the hospital for a while and uh, no other details yet, mm. but I'm sure he'll be willing to talk about that. What I'm willing to talk about today is anytime I go through one of these sort of life-altering events, and sometimes it could be permanently life-altering, sometimes it's just temporarily life-altering. You change something in your life or quite often what happens, something is thrust upon you, right? Mm. And it completely changes your perspective. I thought about the nadir of my life back in 2019 when my autoimmune condition was at its worst, mm. and I'm 80% better now. But when it was at its worst, there's this old line from Confucius where he says, a healthy man wants 10,000 things. A sick man wants but one. Yeah. And that is so true. When you end up in the hospital mm -hmm. or when you have a tremendous amount of pain, when you break an arm, all of a sudden the only thing you want is healing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You don't want all the things you thought you actually wanted. Yeah. Or if you break your back. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, after breaking my back, um, yeah, I, I behave differently now. Just when I'm snowboarding or doing any type of outdoors activities um, because I'm just, I'm not 27 anymore. And I know I feel 27, but I'm not 27. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I heal like a 50 year old. <laughs> I hurt my knee this week. Yeah. Just from sleeping. <laughs> what Dude, are you doing in so, your sleep? Uh, it's none of your business. I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know if, uh, he would be okay with me naming. Let's just say his name rhymes with Smat Biavella. <laughs> that could be anyone. It could be anyone. That's so vague. But I remember um, we were talking and he was like, dude, like I'm having this, when I sleep, I put my arms above my head. He's like, but they're like falling asleep and like, is there something wrong with me? And I'm like, no, dude, like that just starts happening at a certain point. <laughs> you can't sleep with your arms above your head. 
<laughs> it has to do with like, uh, I know it has to do with working out, but also like just being older. And apparently, um, yeah, you put your hands above your head while you sleep and uh, not like, you know, you're not like doing this. Yeah, you're not under arrest. <laughs> right. Don't shoot. <laughs> <laughs> And apparently, uh, you know, you're, you, you know, you get to a certain age and your heart's like, I'm not pumping blood to those arms. <laughs> oh, shoot. All right. Well, speaking of someone completely unrelated to whoever you were talking about, Matt Diavella is having a a baby now. I mean, I'm sure yeah. everyone has seen this online at this point. We're actually going to talk about Matt later in the podcast during our Right Here, Right Now segment because we have something really Really exciting to share with you. Our documentary, Minimalism, is going to embark on its third life now. We can't wait to share yeah. some of the details yeah. with you. We're pumped. Mm-hmm. But right now, let's start with our callers. If you have a question or a comment for our show, give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Oh, and you can let us know that you're a Patreon subscriber, so we prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Chelsea. My name is Chelsea. I am a Patreon subscriber, and I am so pumped to hear your discussion on identity clutter. This topic has been a constant struggle for me for as long as I can remember. And while I imagine it manifests for people in many different ways, for me, it has largely been linked to how deeply I associate my identity with what I do for work. While my eight-ish careers in 15 years have taught me some irreplaceable life lessons. They have also left me feeling like a jack-of-all-trades, but a master of none, which in my mind means jack-of-all-identities, but a master of none. For context, I have been a bartender, a Peace Corps volunteer, a touring equestrian artist, an academic studying environmental policy, a dog walker, an oil painter, and I recently got my EMT certification because I think I would like to help people. So that in mind, what can I do in practice to let go of the notion that what I do is not the same as who I am? And is it possible to pursue multiple interests without them feeling mutually exclusive? This is a fascinating question, Chelsea. By the way, you have a lovely voice. Mm. Uh, You can do voiceover work at What's up? Alabama would be out of business. <laughs> no, no, there's plenty to go around. I, <laughs> so, so Chelsea, if you're ever looking to to be a fourth, fifth mic in the studio, you just let us know. Are you yeah, trying to give her another thing? Yeah, to... that, that's the joke. <laughs> <laughs> this was so relatable, though, because I've I've done wide range of jobs like she has. I know how she feels. Mm, yeah, and yeah. what happens here? This is identity clutter in a way. In fact, we did an episode about identity clutter. It's episode three twenty. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. But I'm going to talk about some things that we didn't talk about that in that episode at all. And so there are a few ways we can go with this. I think about the first line from our second book, Ryan. Mm. It's called Everything That Remains. The line of that is our identities are shaped by the costumes we wear. Mm. And I meant that literally and figuratively. Now, Chelsea, you're wearing a bunch of costumes quite literally. Like if you're going to be an EMT, there's a costume you have to wear. Mm -hmm. And yes, those things can be essential for doing the work that you're going to do or showing that I am an EMT because if an EMT shows up somewhere and they're just wearing like distressed jeans and like a a sleeveless uh, A tank top or whatever, you're going to be like, wait, you're an EMT? Part of the costume is important, but you are not that costume. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I've had to remind myself over and over, and I think 
most people don't know who they are. Mm. And I know some of you need to hear this. You are not your age. You are not your name. You're not your career. You are not your job title. You are not your clothes. You are not your phone. You are not your car. You're not your material possessions. You're not your house. You're not your furniture. You're not your relationship. You're not your haircut. You're not even your body. What did Tyler Durden say? You are not your khakis, right? Mm, yeah. In Fight Club. So it doesn't matter what you accomplish or what you get. The essence of you, the real you, is none of these things. Mm. And these false assumptions make you feel incomplete. They keep you pursuing more just for the sake of more, more, more when you already have enough. And you may even have more than enough. And that's where the identity clutter comes into play. Yeah. Man, that was one of the first ones, uh, you are not your name. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm like, I don't know who I am. I mean, I know what I like to do. I know what I'm passionate about. I know um, what I don't like to do. But <clears throat> if someone was to ask me like, Hey, Ryan Nicodemus, who are you? Mm. I would just give that answer that you gave to uh, that gal at one of our live events. She asked you, so who are you now? And you said, I am what I desire. Mm. Mm. And uh, it, it was kind of an esoteric response, but it really makes a lot of sense. It's, it's interesting because this, this had my brain going somewhere too with um, living a purpose, living my purpose or living a purpose. But I was uh, having lunch with uh, a friend yesterday and I was um, talking about how I used to think of purpose as a possession and how, um, where's my purpose? Milburn has his purpose. Danny unknown, Danny unsure, (laughs) (laughs) Danny unamused. Uh, He has his purpose. Where's my purpose? You know, Mallory has her purpose. And, And I was explaining how I realized that you don't, really possess a purpose. Like you, you can choose a purpose to serve. Mm-hmm. And then if you serve it well enough and dedicate yourself to it, uh, it will own you. Yeah. There isn't a vending machine full of purpose. Right. Exactly. Yes. And, and he, he said something to me that I was like, Oh, like he took it a step further. He was like, I would just append what you're saying with this. Um, you are your purpose. Like you are, you are your living purpose. Mm-hmm. And so basically encouraging me to stop thinking as it, uh, thinking about it as a external thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of like that thought. So it's like now when you're talking about identity, I think, oh, like in a perfect world, like I would be my living purpose and people would look at me and, and I wouldn't even have to tell them mm-hmm. who I am yeah. because I'm living that purpose. Yeah, and all of the accoutrements of your purpose, the costumes you wear, both literally and figuratively. It goes mm-hmm. back to that line. You, Your identity is shaped by those costumes, but really mm-hmm. it's shaped by the story you tell yourself. Yeah. And the story can be that here's my job title, so that's who I am. Here's my name, so that's who I am. This is my haircut or my age or my car. And all of these things, there's nothing wrong with them. It doesn't mean you have to run around naked with no job title, no name. You have to shed all of those things. Mm. But you are not actually those things. Jed McKenna talks about the ego being the false self. Oh, yeah. 
And that's ultimately what we're talking about here. Any self that I create through these stories, through the language that I use to describe myself, is merely an approximation. When Anthony DeMello talks about how you can't talk about what is true, you can only talk about what is not true. And that Mm. sort of points toward the truth. It seems that is true also for the self. Because yes, I could say Ryan is a minimalist. Who is Ryan Nicodemus? Well, he has blue eyes. He's a minimalist. He's five foot 11 and three quarters. Mm. (laughs) And whatever, like I could describe- Low blow, Melbourne. (laughs) (laughs) Edit that out, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I could describe you- by listing 20 characteristics or 40 characteristics, Mm. but that's probably describing dozens or hundreds or thousands of other people as well. That's not who you are. And ultimately, (sighs) when you get down to it, there is no separate self. And now we get a bit esoteric here when we talk about the self and how there isn't the non-dual approach. It's like, Mm. well, there isn't really a Ryan and a Josh. We're all part of this one thing Mm -hmm. where you didn't come into this world. You came out of it, as Alan Watts says. Oh, wow. I like that. And what that shows you is, yeah, you're not actually different. It's like a wave, right? Yeah. When you go to the ocean, you see a wave. Where does it begin and where does it end? Yeah. That's, yeah. Because it doesn't end and it doesn't begin. It's all part of some larger thing. And I could capture the wave and say, well, this is my individual wave. Mm. And I could start telling stories about the wave and I could give a job title to the wave and I've named the wave and now I've held on to it for seven years. So this wave is seven years old. Mm. I saw this ancient uh, Native American parable that said, if you didn't know your age... How old would you be? Yeah. Hard to, it's hard to answer that. I do feel 27. Uh, maybe I feel 28 at this point. Right. But even that is, <laughs> you're, you're naming an age still. Oh, oh, right. I see what you're saying. If yeah. you didn't have an age, how old would you be? Yeah. And I, I contrast that with some of the great mystics who talk about most adults are just 12-year-olds with 59 years of experience or whatever. Most 71-year-olds are 12-year-olds with 59 years of experience because what we do is we never really mature into adulthood. Mm. Well, why is that? Because we've picked up this false self. We've picked up this ego, this identity, whatever you want to call it, and now that is me. And I feel like I've solidified me as a person. But of course, what do we really know? That the only thing that is inevitable is change. Yeah. Because death is a type of change. Your job will change. Your age will change. Your career over the long haul will change. Your interests, your hobbies will change. Your friends and relationships will change. And what do we try to do? We go around, oh, I've got all these problems. I need to fix them. Mm. Well, that is a misnomer because you can't fix anything because as soon as something becomes fixed, It is bound to change. Otherwise, you're going to stay stuck in the old as opposed to embracing whatever the new thing is in your life, embracing that change. So how do you how do you feel about that question? Like if I was to ask you, hey, Milburn, like, who are you? Um, Like, how would you answer that without answering it with a question? But I I love the question, the answer that I gave extemporaneously there. We (laughs) are what we desire. Mm -hmm. And the question then becomes, what do you actually desire? What what is the blueprint of your desire? What is the makeup of your desires? Are they mimetic desires? And I think sometimes a mimetic desire can be helpful. If you truly don't know what it means to live a meaningful life, what is my purpose? We're asking that sort of question. Yeah. 
Now, I don't think you can go to a vending machine and find a purpose, but I think you can survey the landscape and you can find some people where you're like, okay, I really like their sense of joy, their sense of calm, their sense of peace. What do their relationships look like? Yeah. What does their career path look like? What what is it? What does their life look like? How is it organized? Not because I need to follow that as a specific recipe, mm-hmm. but because wow, I like that ingredient in their life. Let me reverse engineer that to see if to see whether it applies to my life mm. or to see whether or not maybe that would just be identity clutter for me. Yeah. Malabama. If I asked you who 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 are you? Like what would what would how would you answer that? Honestly, I don't know yeah. because it changes constantly. Yeah. And I don't think that's a bad thing because I'm changing constantly. Uh, yeah. My ideas, my interests, my passions, even talking to Jordan, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm into this new thing now. And he's like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I, it's, a, it's such a tough question. It is. This idea and this concept of who are you and what do you believe is not a simple question to answer. Or it's not an easy one, at least. L- let yeah. me tell you why it's so difficult for me to even grasp a a Ryan Nicodemus and this one united being that can say, you know, who he is. Um, first off, when I talk about my hand, it, it's, this is me, but I don't talk about it like that. Right. This is, it's a, it's a possession. Uh-huh. It's something, but who possesses it? Ooh. You know what I'm saying? There is no possessor of the hand right. ultimately. Yeah, exactly. And then um, the Eckhart Tolle, the power now, the the beginning of his book where he talked about how he was contemplating suicide because he did not like the person that he saw. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And all of a sudden it hit him. Like he's looking in the mirror and he's like, wait a minute. Like there are two selves going on right now. Mm-hmm. There is like the man that I am. And then there's the man who is judging the man that I am. And when I think of those types of concepts, it's like, there is no self. Right. Yeah. And I think it's evident when you don't anthropomorphize it and you take it to the more material world. Like if I go to your car, your Toyota, Ryan, mm-hmm. or let's say we take your Toyota from our first documentary. Yes. That 2004 Toyota Corolla. Mm-hmm. And you would look at that and you say, that is a car, right? Mm-hmm. That's a great label for that. And it makes sense to describe it. We were driving around in Ryan's car. Now, if I take the tires off of it, you'd still call it a car, mm. I guess. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do what a car needs to do. Oh, yeah. But okay, you can put the tires back on, but I take the engine out. Is it still a car? I don't know. It's like, at what what point does it stop becoming a car? Right. Yeah. Mm. Or I put the engine back in, now I just take the hood off. It's still a car, but it looks less like a car than it did, but it functions more like a car. And the same is true now if I cut your hand off. Are you still Ryan Nicodemus? I can't handle this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough one. And by the way, if I take one of your kidneys out, you're mm. still Ryan Nicodemus, you still live. I could take seven-eighths of your liver out, like mm-hmm. what happened with Clint Ober, mm. and you are still Ryan Nicodemus. If I take one of your eyes out of your head, you're still Ryan Nicodemus, right? Mm. But are you still the same person? Is there a self? Uh, ultimately, the answer to that is no. There is no self behind your eyes. Mm. It just it really feels that way. And it's the gift and the curse we've been given. The yeah. five senses, there are way more than five senses, but the, the five main senses we always talk about, 
those make us feel like an individual self that is separate. We've mm. otherized ourselves from the world. And so no wonder when we get on social media and we amplify the self, what happens? More otherizing. I'm better than you. I'm different from you. I know more than you. I have more information. I have more knowledge. I'm more virtuous. I'm more ethical. I'm more moral mm. than you. Mm. I am better because I am different. When we step back and realize there isn't a self, there isn't a true self, and this is hard to really grasp. Mm -hmm. It's the reason that people often do psychedelics and things like that, so they can remove the the self. They, they can remove the ego. The, the, the ego will dissolve when that happens. Yeah. There are other ways to do that as well, through meditation, through contemplative exercises as well. But you begin to realize that, oh, I'm not all of these stories that I tell myself. And yeah. by the way, ultimately, you do become the stories you tell yourself. Mm. But here's the good news, Chelsea. You can tell yourself a different story that is much more power empowering, a story that is much more, well, you can tell yourself a story that is much more empowering, but also less limiting. Because it is true that you become what you believe about the world, the stories you tell yourself about the world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Chelsea, I'd love to send you a copy of our book, Everything That Remains, uh, coming up on the 10-year anniversary of that right now. And it's really a book about letting go of identity clutter, uh, specifically our career identities. Ryan and I walked away from the corporate world at the sort of pinnacle of our success and everything was awesome, except everything wasn't awesome. Yeah. And we realized that, like I couldn't keep telling myself this lie. So if you enjoyed the podcast, I think you'll enjoy the audiobook version of Everything That Remains, or if you want the book book or the ebook version, we'd be happy to send those to you as well. Our next question is from Matthew. Hi. My name is Matthew and I am from Malta. I work as a nurse in an oncology hospital. I am also a father of four, four small kids. Uh, one can appreciate that to do some exercise, it is a bit more difficult, but not impossible. At work during my break, I like to go for a run. It helps me calm down, calm down my thoughts and recharge for the rest of the shift. Unfortunately, lately I was diagnosed with a tear in my lower spine. And because of this, I was advised to not run anymore. The situation broke me. I used to look forward for the, for the run in difficult days. It used to be my alone time, but unfortunately, I cannot do so anymore. From your experience, do you have any suggestions on how to get over such a situation? How to find different ways to clear your mind from work stuff that, and that I can go home and enjoy my family and not carry the weight of work with me? Matthew, a few questions here that you ask. I think ultimately we need to get to the bottom of this, though. It's not the running that you miss. It's whatever the running got you yeah. that you missed. Mm -hmm. And that's the question I would ask myself. When you lose the ability to do something, I'm thinking right now when you know, eventually every athlete has to retire because they lose the physical ability to be able to do something. We're seeing this with LeBron James right now. He's still at an amazing level of physicality. And you saw this with Tom Brady at one point in football, right? Mm -hmm. And yet they've reached the end of their apex. And the question they have to ask themselves, and now I think with Matthew, the question he needs to ask himself is, what did running actually get you? Well, it gave you a sense of calm or peace, mm -hmm. I, I suspect. Yeah. 
It also was uh, gave you the ability to clear your mind. And maybe there's a whole list of 10 things that you got from running. Or maybe it was just one thing that you got from running. What did it get you? And then what is a different path to get there? Mm-hmm. Ryan, you mentioned earlier that you broke your back when you were snowboarding. Mm-hmm. And for a while, you couldn't do that. But yeah. it doesn't mean you couldn't still get something out of life because that one thing was taken away from you. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I had to heal. And... I had to get back on the horse eventually. And uh, yeah, I can totally snowboard now. I wonder if that's the case for Matthew here. Like, is it, you know, is there a path back to healing? Because if so, then Matthew, this is temporary. If this is something that um, isn't fixable and you have to stop running for the rest of your life, then yeah, like I'm I'm just gonna, um, you know, kind of add a little bit to what Josh was saying here. So you probably got a nice scenic view when you ran, you got your heart pumping, you probably got that runner's high, but there are so many other ways to do that other than running. That's right. Um, it's like he lives in Malta, which very, very special place. It's, uh, yeah, it's really, I'm kind of jealous he lives in Malta, <laughs> um, but it's very bike friendly. So um, he can 100% uh, ride a bike around that might maybe give him uh, what what he was getting with running. But here's the other thing too, is you may not get, a hundred percent of everything with something else right. that you got with running. So um, I wouldn't have that expectation that you're going to replace it with something that is going to do exactly for you what running did. Now, that may be the case. I'm not saying it's impossible. Um, but hurling that expectation on yourself, um, well, any expectations are eventually going to lead to some sort of... Uh, um, some sort of pain, some right. s- some sort of letdown. Yeah. But here's the thing, though, is that you will, though, with something else, you'll discover new things that you're getting. Yeah, yeah. And I think the you're not you may not get a hundred percent because you're not going to map on exactly to what running got you. But mm-hmm. there's a scenario here where this pivot actually works out in a better direction for you, right? Because mm-hmm. you might not get a hundred percent, you might get a hundred and ten percent, you might get a hundred and twenty percent. And again, this goes to the story we tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, he's in Malta and he can't run, but what can he do? I can go to the ocean every day. Yeah. <gasps> oh my gosh, I have this whole new experience. I'm getting yeah. in the ocean every morning. I'm grounding, and I'm I feel more alive from that than I even did from the running. Mm. And so quite often, these little setbacks, I mean, TK isn't here today, and I'm eager to hear what he learns in the short term, but I'm also eager to hear what he learns in the long term from this hospitalization, from this intestinal blockage, and does it reshift, what is it, does it reprioritize, does it refocus what is important to him? And it sounds that's, like, that's where Matthew is right now. He thought it was the running that was important to him. The running is just the idea identity. I am a runner, right? Mm. Well, no, you're not, Matthew. You are Matthew. And by the way, you're not even Matthew. That's just a a, a mouth noise that we make to describe you, (laughs) right? You don't live in Malta. You live somewhere that we call Malta. We use language to describe these things. It only becomes identity clutter when we cling to that identity. But there's Mm. somewhere you can go that is for you, potentially even better than running because you get the variety, you get the novelty, you get the newness Mm. of that. And then you also get the certainty that of, the the release that you got from running from this new thing as well. Yeah. Something to consider too is, uh, you know, he might be really wrapped up with that identity of being a runner. I am a runner. And now that he can't run, he might be uh, a little confused as to what, you know, his identity is. And so, if he's waking up on a regular basis and beating himself up like, oh, I'm not a runner anymore. 
I'm not a runner anymore. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm a biker now, but I'm not a runner. That, um, it's another expectation that mm-hmm. you should be uh, identified as a runner. That is your boulder that you're carrying around. Um, and I'm just giving you permission to let it go if you need to let it go. Yeah, you picked up that boulder and you know what? Maybe even served you for a, a period of time. Mm-hmm. I am a runner, but now you're holding on to it when you don't have that ability. Yeah. And so there's a different story you can tell yourself mm-hmm. about your own identity that will even help you set that down. Yeah. And it's interesting because like I was having a conversation with a friend yesterday and he was telling me about how he beats himself up over not being, uh, um, you know, a, a business success. What You know, as far as entrepreneur goes, he's very successful, but he wants like, you know, that um, Bill Gates level of success. Mm-hmm. And he tells himself on a regular basis that he's capable of it. And then he beats himself up for not getting there. And I'm like, dude, like you are using this, um, for, you're beating yourself up on your own accord, first off, like no one is telling you to beat yourself up over that. Yes. But you are wrapped up so much with beating yourself up that like it has become part of your identity. And I wonder if you ever actually got to that success, if it would even feel good because Mm. then now he has to let go of the identity of beating himself up. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Well, it's funny you say that because you and I worked in the corporate world for a long time and Mm -hmm. I had an identity tied up in that. Mm -hmm. I'm the director of operations for these retail stores or I'm a regional manager or whatever it was at the time, right? Mm -hmm. And that's who I was. And I re, I, I solidified it by constantly repeating it, right? Mm -hmm. Here's my job title. Therefore, that's who I am. I am my name plus my job title. Mm -hmm. Everything that I am is right here on my business card, right? And of course, that was never me. It was just the story that I told myself. And then I remember maybe five years ago when we started spending some time with the Ramsey folks, uh, Ramsey Solutions, Mm -hmm. Dave Ramsey and uh, Rachel and all the other folks. And I absolutely love what they do. And early on, you and I started talking and we're like, oh, we could do like the Dave Ramsey thing, but for minimalism, right? Mm -hmm. We could have minimalist personalities. We could have a a large team. You know, he has 1,100 employees now and he absolutely loves it. Yeah. And I realized I could do that, Mm. but I would not be happy doing that. Yeah. That's not what brings me peace or tranquility or fulfillment. In fact, it often does the opposite. The they're running the corporate structure and all of these other things, mm-hmm. that would not make me happy. I see Dave and he thrives on it. And yeah. I think that is awesome. He just launched a new version of his podcast, Entree Leadership, and he's the host of it now. And he feels totally alive doing that. Mm-hmm. And I love that he feels so alive. Like I, there, He's been reinvigorated through Entree Leadership. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like, you know, LeBron James coming to the end of his career. Imagine if he went to go play ice hockey for next year. Like it would all be different. Or when Michael Jordan went to go play baseball, Dude. it was yeah. like, it was, oh, it yeah. was, wasn't like grad school. It was like going back to kindergarten again mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. Everything is new. This yeah. is where Matthew is now. He's at a period in his life where he can't do the old. And so He's had to let go of that. Now, you can keep clinging to it if you want. I'm not saying you must set it down, but if you keep holding on to it, you're not actually making room for the new thing that will actually fulfill you. Yeah. Another question here. This one is from Jenna. My name is Jenna Barone. Um, I'm a student at Elon University um, in North Carolina. And my question 
um, in regards to your podcast would be any advice you would have to living minimalistically as a college student, since it's kind of a different way of living to begin with. Mm-hmm. You know what's fascinating about a question like this? How how can I be a minimalist when blank happens? Yeah. And people call into the show all the time. I would love to be a minimalist, but I'm a mom. I'd love to be a minimalist, but I have a family. Mm. I'd love to be a minimalist, but I'm retired. I'd love to be a minimalist, but I have so much stuff. Yeah. Whatever the story is that we tell ourselves. And I love Jenna's question here, and I applaud you for asking this now because you're not saying I can't be a minimalist because I'm a college student. It's like, hey, how does this actually apply to me as a college student? And here's what I'll say. The the simple life is the default human state. Ooh, homo sapiens have been around for somewhere between 600,000 and 900,000 years, depending on, it keeps getting, we keep getting older and older Mm. as we find more remains of homo sapiens, but 4.5 million years for proto-humans, right? Mm. And so the simple life has been the default state arguably for millions of years. What happens though is we complex our lives. We add complexity. Mm -hmm. To complex means to interweave two or more things together. Think about a rope. It's just a bunch of tiny little threads that are complected together over a period of time. And that's what we do with our own lives. We have one little thing and then we thread something else in because we think it makes sense. There's no problem with that. But eventually, our thread gets tangled. We've interwoven so many new threads. Mm -hmm. And you're at a point right now, Jenna, before you've complected your life so much that it's really difficult to become untangled. So how do you simplify your life? By not tangling it with new complexities. Yeah, so the question is, is how can you avoid complicating your life? Uh, As a college student, one of those things is staying out of debt. So if there's a way for you to um, apply for uh, any scholarships or Pell Grants, uh, our friend um, uh, Anthony wrote, a book called Debt-Free College Degree. And it's an amazing tool, an amazing resource, whether you are getting ready to start college or you're in college mm-hmm. to essentially graduate with uh, without debt. I remember we were, um, it was a live event and we were doing the Q&A session and someone had stood up and they're like, you know, uh, I just, I, I believe in the minimalism thing. You know, I, I love you guys. I'm here. But, you know, the problem is it doesn't really work for everyone because, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm going to college. I have to go to college. I'm in med school. You got to go get your, you know, got to get your degree if you want to be a doctor. And I, I just don't know what to do. I'm, I'm, gra- I'm going to graduate with uh, over a hundred, you know, thousand dollars worth of debt, whatever it was. And she was like, um, so what you're talking about as far as simplifying, you know, it just, it won't work for me mm-hmm. because, uh, yeah, because I got to go to med school. Here's how it is. And this is a story she was telling herself. That's and right. then uh, the next person who went to the mic they, uh, before they asked their question, they were like, Hey, just so you know, um, I'm a doctor. Um, I got through <laughs> school for free. And if you would like to hear how I did it, I'd be happy to talk to you. But it's funny. Cause like we tell ourselves these stories like, Oh no, I have to graduate with all this debt. Yeah. There's an example of someone who will dismantle whatever disempowering right. story you're telling yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the question, uh, with the previous question with Matthew, understanding there are infinite paths to your destination. It's not just, you can't just get there through running or just get there through college or whatever it is. There is a different path that you can take. And that what that doctor showed, the other future doctor was, 
No, there is a, the path you're on is a path to get there. Mm-hmm. Going into debt, adding more complexity into your life. Mm-hmm. But there's another path. You can actually get through college completely debt-free. Yeah. And you're right, Anthony O'Neill, he really outlines exactly how to do that. Yeah. The truth is there's someone out there with a template that completely dismantles your limiting belief system yeah. that is keeping you stuck. Now, mm-hmm. I don't. it doesn't sound to me like Jenna is stuck somewhere. She just is like, hey, I want to be a college student. I don't want to complicate my life. I don't want all the excess a decade from now. Mm-hmm. And so I applaud you for that because where you are right now is you are preventing your future self from having a clutter life in which you have to subtract all of the mistakes that you are going to make over the next decade. Mm-hmm. You're actually stopping the mistakes before they happen. Mm-hmm. You know, It's your preventative maintenance as opposed to trying to cure some sort of illness that has been caused by the clutter in your life. Because mm-hmm. well, here's what happens usually. Before you realize it, you look in the rear view, and it's been 5, 10, 20 years since you got out of school. And what happens? I've got all this excess stuff. I've got all this debt. I've got excess weight on my body. I've got mental clutter, emotional clutter, spiritual clutter. Mm. My relationships are in shambles. I don't really love my career, but it felt like the safe path to take. Mm. And now I'm looking in the rear view and wondering what went wrong. Yeah. It wasn't one thing that went wrong. It was micro indiscretion after micro indiscretion. And now you're probably going to have to clean those things up. Unless you're 20 years old now, the best way to clean up the mistakes of the future is not to make them now. Now, of course, Mm -hmm. you're going to make mistakes and fail. There's no problem with that. It's clinging to those failures and dragging them forward that becomes the problem. Yeah. So besides the financial stuff, um, something else that comes to mind uh, for Jenna here is her relationships. Who are you hanging out with? I mean, do you feel like you have uh, some good standards? Do you hold good standards for yourself? If so, great. If not, find people who hold the standards you want to hold and start hanging out with them. Um, okay. That's why I hang out with uh, Joshua Fields Milburn to raise my <laughs> standards. And I know I'll never get there, but it encourages me to get as close as I can. Oh, that's why I hang out with you. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's why I hang out with me too. <laughs> and actually, that's why I don't hang out with my daughter. She um, won't get a job. Yeah. You're just so lazy. <laughs> Standards are very low. Yeah. Oh, oh my, my goodness. Star. They say you you become the five people you spend the most time with. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a truth to this because yeah. what happens is we begin to mimic or parrot someone who's in our life. Not only do we talk like them, mm-hmm. we dress like them, we become like them, and then we get stuck mm. like them. Yeah. Our friend Erwin Raphael McManus, I heard him talk about this recently. He said, I can tell you a lot about the person based, I can tell you where the person is stuck in their life based Mm. on how they are dressing right now. If you're dressing like it's 2007, Mm -hmm. you're probably stuck in 2000. There was a moment in your life where your wardrobe became stuck, right? And He's like, I, I love this because I'm he, he, I'm speaking as him now. He's like, I love this because I'm a, a fashion designer. He's a pastor as well. but mm. And so he's always updating his wardrobe. It's always new, new, new. And the interesting thing about that is 
He can wear a black t-shirt today, and he's one of the most stylish people I know because the cut is just right. It's on trend or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's different from the black t-shirt he would have worn in 2007. It's these subtle differences, <laughs> and he's paying attention to that. Mm-hmm. Why? Because he's never clinging to the old mm-hmm. so that he can embrace the new. Yeah, yeah. I, other things that come to mind for me, for Jenna, uh, her calendar. Make sure you're being very careful with what you're saying yes to. Oh Mm. my gosh, yes, please do that. It is so easy to clutter your calendar in college because you have all of this opportunity in front of you and you want to get all of these experiences. I did this Mm -hmm. and I collapsed on my graduation day. Mm -hmm. Don't do that to yourself. Be very territorial with that. Um, One thing I want to bring up, I found minimalism when I was in college and the first thing I applied it to was my dorm. Mm, Because what a lot of people I had met would do is they'd keep all their stuff at their parents' house or whoever they had grown up with and they would take just the essentials and maybe a little bit extra and in bring it into that dorm space. This is a great opportunity to take inventory of your stuff. If Mm. you want to apply it to the physical, practical decluttering aspect of it, sure. But this is a great way to practice what is actually essential and what really augments your experience, what brings joy to your day-to-day life Mm. as you try on this new chapter. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I I like this because it is a new chapter, right? You're not ending an old chapter, you're beginning a new one. Uh, Yes, uh, by default, then an old one has to end, but it's not about ending that. It's about moving forward here. Mm -hmm. And when you're moving forward into these new spaces, here's what I've realized in my own life and through Ryan's and my travels all over the world, I would almost always have a little less than enough than a little too much. Absolutely. Because usually Mm -hmm. that shows me what I can get by without, mm-hmm. the temporary deprivation is actually strengthening me in some way. Yeah. It's showing me my limitations. It's stretching my boundaries. It's stretching my limitations. It's showing me that I can bear some things that feel uncomfortable or even feel unbearable. Mm. And that's great. And if I have too much comfort, if I have just a little bit too much, then I never face that discomfort. Mm. And so putting myself in those scenarios of a little bit of discomfort, that's the place from which you're going to grow. (laughs) And Jenna, if you want to bring your parents uh, any joy, um, all that stuff that you left behind at their place to hold on to while you're in college, give them permission to just like let go of it. (laughs) And you'll think your future self will thank you as well for not having to sort through all that stuff. One last note, the calendar clutter thing you were talking about and Uh, Mallory, you're talking about saying yes. It's so easy to say yes because we don't want to offend anyone Mm. or we don't want to... Well, it's so easy to say yes. You're committing your future self to something. I don't even have to do it right now. Mm. It's next Tuesday. I'll say yes to that, not knowing I'm accidentally punishing my future self. Mm. There's a great book about this, Derek Sivers. It's called Hell Yeah or No. Oh my gosh. And so if someone comes to you and asks you to do something, if it's not a hell yeah right now, Mm. then it's a no. And it's okay to say no. No is a complete sentence. Let's move on to some social media questions. Alexa from Instagram has something for us. I just lost a law trial with salary rights from a big firm that destroyed my pension and any compensation Mm. for unused holiday pay. The world feels fake and like we are not free. How do you declutter emotional resentment? You are right. We are not free, but the prison that we create for ourselves is often built by ourselves. The prison that you've created 
is built with bricks that you formed out of your own expectations. Hmm. Now, I will tell you this about resentment. I've, I've dealt with a lot of resentment in my life. And resentment is a consequence of clinging to the way that you wish things were. Yeah. I wish I was taller. I wish I was prettier. I wish I was richer. I wish I was smarter. Mm. I wish this person treated me this way. I wish I would have gotten that job. I wish, wish, wish. I've wished all over myself. And of course, I have all of this resentment now because I'm holding on to the way I wish things were. And that's just another story that I'm telling myself, Mm. right? I'm telling myself a story that, oh, everything would be perfect if blank. Yeah. If blank, then life is awesome. Guess what though? That's an if then statement. Just remove the first clause and it's still true. If I make a million dollars, my life will be awesome. How about this? My life will be awesome. (laughs) And if I make a million dollars, great. And if not, my life will still be awesome. Oh, Alexa, that is like gut-wrenching. I mean, you're working hard. You are saving up for retirement you're being told to expect something. So that's why you have the expectation. And then they swept the rug out from underneath of you. That is, um, I I could not imagine having to go through something like that. I don't know how old Alexa is, but if she's, you know, at retirement age, this is a big freaking deal. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. So man, the only thing that, the only observation I have here is that don't, well, you can do whatever you want, but I would encourage you to not let this define you. Because if you let this happenstance define you, um, you, now your identity is wrapped up in being a victim. Yes. And I'm not saying you aren't a victim of this particular situation, but that doesn't mean you have to live the the rest of your life as a victim. You've been victimized. You don't need to be a victim. Yeah, Yeah, right. And you don't need to victimize others because that's something that people do too when they become victims. Especially when they hold on to resentment, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, again, like this is not something that you can just um, get over with Josh and I making observations. But once the healing does start to um, progress, you know, it's it's about finding out how you're going to move forward. Because if you don't, start moving forward, you're just going to be stuck in the past and the past is going to, it's going to drag you down being that victim. The story of the past too, it should have turned out this way and it didn't. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm stuck here. One of life's most mature virtues is a willingness to walk away. Yeah. Walk away from anything. My wife and I just rewatched the movie Heat recently. She had never seen it and it holds up surprisingly well. Jordan, you're a big Heat fan, I assume, right? Michael Mann, the cinematography. I'm sure you enjoyed the film. Anyway, there's a line in the film that occurs twice, actually, and then it happens another time uh, without him saying it. But the main character, who's essentially the bad guy, Mm -hmm. Robert De Niro, although he's one of those sympathetic bad guys like Tony Soprano or something, we we identify with him. It's one of those cases where we want the bad guy to win, essentially, right? right? There's a line in the film where he says, never bring anything into your life that you're not willing to walk away from in 30 seconds flat. Mm. Now, I don't take that literally, but I do apply that same principle. And I have applied that principle to my life 
for the last dozen years. I'm willing mm. to walk away from any of it. And that's yeah. where the real freedom comes from. Yeah. And so when Alexa says, you feel like you're not free and the world is fake, right? Yeah, you're not free, but you can free yourself by being willing to walk away. It doesn't mean mm. you have to walk away from everything, but even with my marriage, my wife and I talk about this all the time. Is this still something that you want to be in? Well, why do we ask that question because we don't want either one of us to be in the relationship out of obligation. Yeah. And I think the same is true with a career. Are you willing to walk away? Doesn't mean you have to walk away from your clothing. Am I willing to walk away from this style of dress mm. from any of your kitchen utensils and appliances? Can I walk away from these things? No, I used to get value from them though, but I still mm. don't, I don't get value from them anymore. Okay. I'm willing to walk away. What are you willing to walk away from? And the more things you're willing to walk away from, the freer you become. It really is a superpower being able to walk away from anything. I would append that the, that line, he says, don't bring anything into your life that you're not willing to walk away from in 30 seconds. I would say, um, don't become attached to anything yeah. that you're not willing to walk away from in 30 seconds. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and so that's what happens. We often bring something in our life and it doesn't become a problem until we get attached, attached to it, right? Yeah, exactly. Because if you're not attached to the thing, then by definition, you're willing to walk away from it, right? Mm -hmm. And attachment is the sort of first step in clinging. And so when you get attached to something, nothing wrong with that. But if you're willing to let it go, wonderful. If you're not willing to let it go, then you're going to hold on to it well into its obsolescence. Yeah. And that could be an obsolete relationship. It could be an obsolete career, an obsolete ideology. Anything that's obsolete for you that's no longer serving you, it's now just getting in the way. It's yeah. turned into clutter. Yeah. Another question here. This one's from YouTube. EK has a question for us. I love extremely minimalist spaces like JFMs, but I always wonder, do these people have hobbies? I identify as a minimalist, but I could never achieve this level of minimalism with my hobbies like rock climbing and cycling. Are there levels of minimalism now? Apparently. <laughs> yeah, I'm theta eight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm alpha four. <laughs> <laughs> so Ryan, uh, this is in response to, uh, mm -hmm. we put up a picture of the 250 square foot um, guest house that yeah. I live in. And it's really sparse and it's really stark. And in that video, I even talk about like, this is not a prescription, but what I'm hearing from EK is some limiting beliefs. And mm -hmm. I would say that your limiting beliefs are the most dangerous form of identity clutter. Mm. It was Thomas Sowell who said, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. And the honest answer to your question is, when you say I identify as a minimalist, but I could never achieve this level of minimalism with hobbies like rock climbing and cycling, yeah, you're right, you couldn't. I don't have those hobbies. <laughs> and if I did have those hobbies, I wouldn't have the same looking space either. Yeah. And that's not to say that, well, you shouldn't go rock climbing or whatever. Now, I could still go rock climbing and rent equipment regularly or whatever, mm -hmm. but that's probably not appropriate for someone like EK who's doing it regularly. Yeah. And so here's what I've understood is that if I wanted to have a bunch of accoutrements, I'm going to need space for those accoutrements. It doesn't mean they're wrong or bad. If they're serving me, great. Mm -hmm. But no, I don't have any hobbies that require a lot of equipment personally. And if I did, I would happily have those things, even if it made my space less stark or less uh, extremely minimalist. Yeah. No, I mean, I got hobbies, and but I don't, I don't mind having that stuff around. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I've got uh, Mariah and I, we've got a, like a, it's one bedroom and then we got like a little office and my mountain bikes are in there or our mountain bikes are in there. Um, there's a closet in there where like our snowboarding stuff is and it doesn't bother me. Right. But with you, like it would bother you. Right. Even if you did have some, ho- I know you don't mountain bike or snowboard, but let's say you did have some hobbies. Like I know that just because of your preferences, like you still wouldn't have that stuff sitting around and cluttering and closets or whatever it is. Right. And the trade-off for me would be like, maybe I rent a storage locker for those things. Right. And, and that's what I'm getting at is like, you would still live in the space you live in right now and it would still look the same exact way, but you would find solutions to keep it the way that you prefer to look. Yeah. 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 And that trade-off would be that now I'm going to have to spend more money on top of that because yeah. Otherwise, these things are going to clutter my mind. They're going to take up weight in, in my psyche. Yeah. And so that's not worth it for me. I'd rather pay the 80 bucks a month. Or we actually did this uh, recently uh, when we bought the house up in Ojai is there wasn't a whole lot of storage space mm-hmm. there. And I didn't want Bex's camping gear cluttering up our bedroom or anything. Mm-hmm. So we bought and built a shed All in right. the backyard. Yeah. And she keeps her bikes in there and she keeps her camping equipment and I don't know, dead bodies, maybe. I have no idea. I don't go in there. <laughs> it's like going into her purse. You don't go into a woman's purse or she shed. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so she keeps what she needs in there. Yeah. And that was a trade-off. It wasn't free to do that. It took time and money and mm-hmm. land to put it on, right? Mm-hmm. And we did that so that we didn't have the excess in our home. Yeah. And so this limiting belief that you have here, EK, ah. I wonder, do these people have any hobbies? Well, yeah, yeah, you certainly can. Mm -hmm. And you can identify as a minimalist and still achieve this level of stark minimalism if you truly wanted it. I'm not saying you should want Mm -hmm. it, by the way. But you could and be a rock climber and be a cyclist and have hobbies (laughs) that require things that you own in order to make it work. You just have to find the trade-off that works well for you. Yeah, and the only reason it wouldn't work is if you keep telling yourself this story, how you identify as a minimalist and you can never achieve this level of minimalism because of your hobbies. (laughs) (laughs) So stop telling yourself that story (laughs) because with that attitude, you absolutely won't be able to. And by the way, you could just change the story by changing like one or two words, right? Yeah. Uh, You could say, I identify as a minimalist and I can achieve this level of minimalism with hobbies like rock climbing. And cycling. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now you've just changed the story you tell. Now you'll figure out the how as soon as you've identified the why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another question here. This one is from Facebook. Carol Lee asks, how do you keep a multi-purpose space organized? We have a dining table we use as an office desk, but we also serve two to three family meals there each day. Wow. Okay. So I don't have uh, anything pithy for you here, but... I do think about multi-purpose spaces as sort of like a bell curve, Mm. but think about anything that's multi-purpose. You think of bell curve like the the, the top part where it's like, yeah, multi-purpose is really useful because I can use this space for multiple things, right? I do this at home now. I have a dining table that I also like to write at, Mm. right? But at some point when you reach the ends of the bell curve, like I think shampoo and conditioner together is multi-purpose, right? That doesn't work really well for me. Yeah. And so I don't do shampoo and conditioner. Or now it's like super multi-purpose where you have shampoo, conditioner, shower gel, shaving cream, uh, uh, gasoline, whatever it is. It's all in one <laughs> bottle, right? Right. Yeah. 
And it's like, uh, that's a little bit too multi-purpose for me. Yeah. And if I'm in Carol Lee's spot right now, I'm probably going to try to disintegrate my spaces. Right now, it sounds like, and like I said, I think you'll probably be surprised by this answer that I'm giving you. For me, I'm going to look for more space so I can separate these activities because what's happening right now, for me in my own home, you know what? My dining table functions both as a dining table Mm -hmm. and as a writing desk a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And that works really well. However, if we were serving two to three family meals there every day and we needed to fill up the table with a bunch of things that got in the way of my writing process, then I'm going to want a separate space to do writing. And that's totally fine to have a separate space. Just because you have a multi-purpose space doesn't make you a minimalist. And just because you've separated your spaces doesn't make you not a minimalist. Yeah. I mean, she asked how to organize it. And maybe that's the problem. Uh, Because we all know the best way to organize is to get rid of most of your stuff. So maybe it's about how can you, you know, use that dining table as an office with as little accoutrement as possible. Yeah. But if it's not working for you, like you might, yeah, you might have to set up a little table in the corner or um, like I literally, um, my couch is like, that's my office. It's like, I got a nice little spot where I put my computer and uh, cross my legs and like, I just sit there and go at it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I'll stand up at the standing desk. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I I think there are multiple solutions to what Carolee is is yeah. going through here. I'm glad you, you brought look- that up because real quick, the, the standing desk, I got rid of mine recently. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but sometimes I do want to stand up. So I go to the washer and dryer, which is about as tall as this uh, counter height yeah. desk that we're at right now. And I just go put my computer there mm. and I stand above the washer and dryer and I do my emails. <laughs> that's and, so That's awesome, man. especially because you have OCD mm-hmm. and your brain isn't like, you can't be working here. This is a laundry room. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not even a laundry room. It's in our hallway. Right, yeah. And so I'm in the hallway working above the washer and dryer. And part of that is nice because I don't love working from there. Mm-hmm. And so I'll do that only like bat- when I'm batching emails. And so like it makes me want to get out of that space as quickly as possible, mm. which is really helpful. And then when I want to actually write, I'll sit down in the chair and do the writing I want to do. That's yeah. so smart. It's funny that you mentioned that I recently converted to this. I used to have a little antique desk in the corner mm. and I found it got cluttered when I had a designated workspace. Mm. It was like having a mailbox where I can just, oh, I can just pile up this stuff here and I'll get to it when I clock in. And that was becoming so overwhelming. There was so much stuff on my desk. I couldn't sit there to work. Mm. So I deconstructed my desk and I actually tucked it away and said, okay, we're going to go to the couch. We're going to go to my dining room table. We're going to go to the kitchen counter because what I found is those are places where I have that setting the stage rule. They have a reset to where they are completely Mm -hmm. clutter-free. And all I am doing is bringing my laptop and whatever is absolutely necessary for me to get that work done, distraction-free. When I'm done, I close the laptop, I put that stuff away, and then we're ready to eat or we're ready to play a video game or whatever that space is intended for. That's super helpful. We uh, we talk sometimes about the no piles rule. I think another, this is something else, another boundary that would probably help Carolee a lot is not having piles in these spaces. Now, for me, piles usually are mail or packages or bags, anything that sort of comes into the house haphazardly. And so at the end of the night, 
Bex and I, it's usually Bex's stuff. She has a pile of things because I, I tend to handle things as they come in. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my own OCD and it's actually a problem. Sometimes that mm-hmm. gets in the way. It's a little bit too extreme because it distracts me from doing something meaningful. Oh, I got a piece of mail from whatever, Providence Bank. Or now I need to go through this right now. Yeah, That's a bad thing for me to do. But at the end of the night, it makes sense. To, all right, we're going to clear the piles because I don't want to set up my next day. I don't want to punish my tomorrow self for today's indiscretions. Yes. Yeah, yeah. the setting the stage rule. Do you want to talk about that real quick? Yeah, so the setting the stage rule, uh, we, we have two that we use every night. We have the no piles rule. So any pile that has accumulated throughout the day, we'll take care of that. Everything goes in its appropriate place. So there's mm-hmm. a mail folder that we put our mail in or the packages get opened and put in the recycling or whatever there might be. Um, the setting the stage rule is taking five, sometimes it's six, seven, eight minutes a night, but generally five minutes a night mm-hmm. to clear, to set the stage for the next morning, to clear out any of the detritus from the day. Mm-hmm. That could be, oh, you know what? We washed all the dishes, but they're still on the rack. We need to put all the dishes up. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, Ella left a blanket on the floor. Or for some reason, the pillows tipped over here. Anything that is out of place, yeah. we set it back to zero. And we set the stage each each night. That way, when I get up in the morning and it's really early, I'm not like, oh yeah, I got to put the dishes away now or I forgot to do this. No, I start my day in a calm way because Mm -hmm. I ended it by clearing the chaos the night before. Yeah, so bringing that rule into that situation like you're talking about, Mal, like that's, Maybe you're uh, setting the stage before every meal. You're mm-hmm. setting the stage before you set the table. Yes. Mm-hmm. And making that part of the routine might also kind of, um, yeah, help you help you feel a little bit more uh, organized. Uh, yeah. I think understanding that it's okay to have a separate space too, if that would feel less chaotic to you, mm-hmm. you totally have our permission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalist during the lightning round. We each have 60 seconds to answer your questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes over at theminimalists.com so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. Looks like we have a question today from I Just Don't Understand. How do I get the rest of my family to at least try minimalism? I donate, sell, and throw away so much, but no one else is willing to give it a shot. I think you should probably just shame them until they figure it out. (laughs) Next question. (laughs) (laughs) Isolate them, make them feel bad about themselves. Yeah, write in a a question to the minimalists and uh, have them roast them on on their podcast. (laughs) Yeah, listen, hey, if if you're one of I just don't understand family members, how dare you? Yeah, right. How dare you not be a minimalist? We know this is the only appropriate way to live our lives and you're actually doing it wrong. And I think as soon as you understand that I just don't understand is doing it right, (laughs) you'll be able to hop up on the pedestal with them. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wait, this is beyond our 60 seconds. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock for my good friend, Ryan Nicodemus. Ryan, you got something pithy for us? I do. Expectations are the bedrock for disappointment. And let me just tell you, I have had so many expectations in my life, expectations of how my parents should have been, expectations about how my job should have went, how my boss should have been, expectations about how my family members should treat me, expectations about how my business partner should treat me, expectations about how all of uh, the people who work with us, uh, how they should act. And let me tell you, 
The more expectations you have, the more disappointment you're going to have in your life. And I'll tell you, when I let go of all those expectations, I cannot tell you how freeing it was. Mm -hmm. Because when you lower your expectations while keeping your standards high, magic happens. I love that. Let me just expand on that real quick. The expectations versus standards. So expectations is you should do this. You should do this. You should do this. I need you to do this. Quite often, we don't even communicate our expectations, which is a problem too. Like I expect Ryan to do this, although I never even told him. Mm -hmm. So now I'm punishing myself twice. Ryan didn't do it. I didn't tell him to do it. But even then having the expectation, even if I do tell you to do it and you don't meet it, well, now I'm beating myself up for something you didn't do. How weird is that? Now a standard is for me. You know, I get up every morning and I do these three things. I write, read, and exercise. Mm-hmm. That's my standard for me. Now, if Ryan came to me and said, Josh, I think you should get up every morning and write, read, and exercise. I would first off say, well, I'm already doing that. Mm-hmm. But also, like, how dare you tell me how I should live my life, right? right? Yeah. Because you could come to me and say, Josh, I think every morning you should stop reading. And why do you have that expectation of me, right? Yeah. But give me 60 seconds real quick. I'm going to give you something pithy and maybe we can expand on it together. The process is only as compelling as its benefits. Mm. Quite often, we get really excited about something. I'm excited about decluttering. I'm excited about minimalism. I'm excited about this new fashion trend or this new social media app. I'm so excited about this. You should do it too. Let me show you how. No one cares how to do it if they don't understand the benefits. They have to understand the why. So what's the most compelling way to convince someone that minimalism is appropriate for them? It's to not convince them at all, but simply show them the benefits in your life and then also show them how their life might be better with less, how their life might be more with less. What are the benefits of simplifying your life? And what are the benefits of simplifying their life? Then they'll feel compelled to let go. Yeah. I mean, I I just don't understand this question here. Um, Well, let me point this out. Their standards are that they donate, they sell, they get rid of as much as they can. They live a very minimalistic lifestyle. That's a high standard. Mm -hmm. But even if those benefits that they experience isn't translating to their family, Mm -hmm. like that has nothing to do with the standards. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think you go even further here. I donate, I sell, and I throw away so much. They're seeing the how to. That's not compelling at all. I don't, it's boring to declutter. decluttering. Oh, gross. Cleaning out my closet, clearing the cabinets. Why would I want to spend time doing that? It feels like a waste of time. Mm -hmm. Well, it only feels like a waste of time because you don't know what's on the other side of the decluttering. Letting go is merely the first step. If you pretend decluttering is the end result, you've missed the whole point. Clearing the clutter, making room for what's truly important. So can you help them see what's important without persuading them, without battering them with minimalism? Because I tell you, the best way to turn them off from simplifying, the best way to turn them off from minimalism is to prescribe minimalism to them. Yeah, Yeah. it's yeah, it's and especially like trying to guilt trip them. I I remember we were at an event recently and uh, there was a little Q&A session and um, a, a, a woman had went up there and she was like, you know, I went to Venice for this protest. And it was a very important uh, protest. It was a very important subject. Um, All of my friends live in Venice. And, you know, they say that they care about the same things that I do. But I was the only one there. I didn't see anyone else. 
And it's the yeah. right, exactly. And and then they're like, what do I like, what do I do when no one else sees it? And the the truth is, is it, you have to stop caring what other people see. What matters is what you see. What matters is like how you feel. And are you uh are you doing what you need to do to stay in honor with yourself? Yeah, and you weren't doing it for them. You were right. You were doing it for yourself. At least that's what you're telling yourself, but your question there. That, that person who was asking that question actually was exposing something about themselves. Yes. Oh, I was doing this because it looked good to be doing this as opposed to I thought it was the right thing for me to do. Absolutely. And like, there might even be an aspect of loneliness there too. Mm. Yeah. You know, like I felt lonely doing it. And yeah. if that's the case, the good news is, is there are millions of people out there who like and are interested in the same things that you are. That's right. So if you feel lonely in this uh, journey, then find some people who are on the same journey and make some friends. Yeah, you can even go to minimalist.org. We have 100 free local meetup groups over there. Also an online meetup group as well. Minimalist.org. We'll check in with the Patreon live stream in a moment, Alabama. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing, one rather exciting thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists. Mark your calendars, y'all. After 80 million views and seven years on Netflix, our first film, Minimalism, a documentary about the important things, which is directed by our good friend, Matt Diavella, is coming to YouTube this Sunday, June 18th, 2023. So please mark your calendars and sign up for our email list. It'll be 100% advertisement free. You know, we don't do ads yeah. on our podcast or on our YouTube channel. Mm. You can check it out there. We're going to discuss much more next week. We'll dive deep into why we decided to do this. This is really the, the film's third life in a way. Yeah. First life was in theaters and then we did the online release. And now it's going to be out there on YouTube for millions of more people to see. If you sign up for our email list over at theminimalists.com, you will be the first to get the link. And um, I do want to take a minute to mention some of the amazing folks who were in this film. I just, Ryan, I just rewatched it. I don't want to get into the details because I want to talk to you about mm-hmm. it in detail next week. And my gosh, it is an outstanding film. Dude, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where like, I have to look in the mirror and say, hey, Nicodemus, this might be the best creation you've ever been part of. Yeah. It's and so good. It's, it's a stunning film and we're going to share it with you. 100% advertisement free, for free on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Minimalists. I want to say thanks to some fine folks here and we'll we'll expand on this uh, a bit next week, but VVE or we, as we call them, Man. Uh, they made the music for the film and it the soundtrack is just stunning. Mm. They literally scored the whole film for us, um, all from scratch, all from getting like clips from Matt Diavella. Mm-hmm. He, he would just send them clips and they're like, oh, okay, we get the vibe you're going for. Yeah. And then they would create music. I can't tell you how many times I'll be playing that album or songs from that album and people are like oh my god who is this why haven't i heard of this band yeah so i sat down with drew i had lunch with him last week drew's the singer from it so yeah. uh two two guys uh nate pfeiffer and andrew cliffin capener they formed their own band called we or vve one of them calls it we one of them calls it vve oh, so that's I great. love it, right? It's great, yeah. And um, So which one are you? Are you we or VVE? I'm uh, we. Okay, I'll be VVE then. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and so Nate is a Grammy-nominated producer, and he is like the godfather of Provo, Utah. He runs these amazing studios out there. Super talented dude. And then he might have the best studio, like, 
this side of the Mississippi, man. Yeah, I mean, like, it's like Dr. Dre levels. It's, it's unbelievable. Stunning. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I was meeting with Drew, uh, the singer. He's the lead singer of my favorite band from my favorite album, Parlor Hawk. And um, I couldn't believe we got them to do the music for mm. this film. But I was talking to him because he still, he sings to his kids every night. Still. Oh, that's awesome. And I'm like, do you like play the old Parlor Hawk songs? He goes, yeah, but the songs they like the most are from both of your films. Yeah. Oh. Of course, dude, that, that was, it was some special music. Yeah. It, it might be my favorite part of uh, both of those films is, is are the soundtracks. Yeah. 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 And so, uh, coming this Sunday, June 18th, Minimalism, a documentary about the important things, which was sound mixed by our friend, Peter Duff, post-production Peter, as you know him, mm-hmm. he mixes this podcast as well. Color graded by our friend, Chris Newhart, who was actually the director of photography on the second film. I want to thank everyone in the film. We'll do a deep dive on it next week as well. And of course, I want to thank Matt Diavella. I learned something about him this week, Ryan, but I'm going to wait till next week. I want to wait till next week's episode to reveal something I learned about Matt Diavella. <laughs> okay. Tune in for that. Let's uh, tune into our live stream right now. Answer any questions you might have. What do you got in Alabama? Here's a question from Catherine. I feel like in the pursuit of living a more intentional life, I try to be myself as much as possible. And that mindset is very far from this intention. How do you navigate daily life being yourself while also having to sometimes fake it till you make it? Well, that's another disempowering story. In fact, there are two disempowering stories here. There's a hidden one and there's one that's out in the open. Yeah. The first disempowering story is that I have to fake it until I make it. Mm. Who told you that? Mm. Who lied to you? Mm. Who told you that you can't be you? Now, here's the hidden story behind yeah. it. Cool, cool. Well, I, I feel like I fake it till I make it a lot. Do you want to pause here? Or do you want to? Yeah, tell me about it. So for me, it's like I might wake up uh, in a bad mood, not feeling well, um, you know, like go uh, grab a cup of green tea. I've been doing more tea than coffee these days. Um, maybe, you know, wake up a little bit, but like I still feel bad still feel maybe a little foggy. Mm -hmm. And then I get a phone call and I'm like, oh man, like I really want to give this person the best of me. Mm. So in that sense, I'm not faking it because it is genuinely who I am. But in that moment, I'm like so drained of energy that like I am kind of faking the, hey, how's it going? Mm. Ryan Nicodemus here, you know? Yeah. Would you consider that faking it till you make it or? I think there there are a distinction I would make and I would Mm -hmm. just reframe or retitle the story here. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that you're faking it until you make it. You are doing what the best version of Ryan Nicodemus would do. Right, And which is not faking it, you're saying. Right, and Uh. so there is this story in Love People Use Things where there was a friend of mine. She said, I'm going to, I want to get one of those WWJD bracelets Mm -hmm. so I can, anytime I go to the store and I feel compelled to make an impulse purchase, I can look down and say, what would Joshua do? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I would say, I think I need one of those as well. Not in the sense that like, what would Joshua Fields Milburn do, but what would the best version of me do in this scenario. That's not faking it. That's just behaving the way the best version of myself would behave. Mm. If I followed myself around with a GoPro all day, what would the best version of me be doing right now? And I think that's a beautiful question to ask. Would the best version of me right now procrastinate? Mm. Would the best version of me lie? Would the best version of me 
not do the work that is required to create the meaningful thing that I want to create? What would the best version of me do right now? Mm. That's not faking it. Faking it is being someone other than you want to be. You're pretending to be someone else. Now, here's the the second part of the story for Catherine is you are pretending, this is the other disempowering story. You're pretending there is a fixed self. Ooh, Mm. yeah. There is no fixed self. You can be whatever version of you you want to be. And so the best version of Catherine now Mm. will be completely different from the best version of you 10 years ago and the best version of you 10 years from now. There is no fixed self because there is no self at all. We're talking today about the false self that we create. Mm. And that is this identity that I am one complete whole person that is unchanging. Well, as we've already explored, the only thing that is guaranteed is that level of change. Man, I was going to say, Mariah and I, we've been asking each other, um, uh, who who are you today? A friend like recommended us to ask this to each other. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting experiment. And the reason being is, is uh, these old stories like carry through and a lot of these old stories we want to drop. So when we ask ourselves, when we ask each other that question and we're describing ourselves, um, if an old story is coming up, like we can call each other out on that and be like, oh, that sounds like the old story, you know? Um, that's about all I have because we've only been doing it for a couple couple few days. But um, yeah, it's an interesting concept. Like every morning, waking up and like looking in the mirror, looking at your partner and being like, who are you today? Ooh. I like that yeah. a lot. Let I'm going to steal that. Yeah, let us know in the comments, who are you today? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what would your answer be to that question? Yeah. We'll check back in with the Patreon live stream here in a little bit. But first... Alabama, what else you got for us? Here's a minimalist insight from one of our listeners. This is a listener tip for the attached clothing episode. Jessica from Vermont. This is your neighbor, Don, from New Hampshire. I can definitely sympathize with your struggles with New England weather. My solution was a three-in-one coat. If I zip out the inner lining, I have a nice fleece jacket for those cooler days. The water-resistant outer shell makes a nice raincoat or windbreaker. Mine happens to have a hood built into the collar, which is great for snow, wind, or rain. Uh, When I reassemble it, I have a great winter coat. I've owned mine for 15 years now and it is the only coat I need. Hope this tip helps you. And to Josh and Ryan, please give Malabama more airtime. Her beautiful voice and cheerful nature always puts a smile on my face. Perhaps you can add her to the lightning round. Call it the Malabama Minute. Thank you all for doing what you do. So I was, this was like years and years ago, um, was on uh, mushrooms, psilocybin. And I had this thought, and I brought this up when we had Sam Harris on the podcast. Uh-huh. Um, but I literally was thinking about ego and who I am and, you know, having this like esoteric whatever conversation with myself. And then I got this like brilliant idea where I was like, dude, like you will reach enlightenment when you look in the mirror and you don't see anything. Mm. And it's funny because like, I know that that sounds really out there, but the more we talk about identity, I'm like, maybe I was onto something though. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is what psychedelics do. And I'll end on this. We'll start recording a second. Psychedelics remove the pre-existing assumptions of the world. Yeah. And so, um, we like even things like, oh, was the weekend? You know, like, oh, it's Saturday. It's the weekend. Like, that's a concept. (laughs) It removes all concepts and constructs. Yeah. Um, I've never done any traditional like psilocybin or ayahuasca or even MDMA, yeah. but, um, 
ketamine. I have done ketamine. Yeah. I talked about it on that episode with Annika Harris. Right. Yeah. And um, doctor-assisted uh, ketamine. Yeah. And um, you do see that ego death and you begin to realize like, oh, like... What like, am I so worried about? Yeah. Like, why am I worried about all this stuff? Yes. Yeah. And, and what it is, it's like you get to... Um, you know, from the outside in, look at all the expectations that you're carrying around with you mm-hmm. and, and look at how ridiculous it is. Yeah. yeah. I say we just keep this part in the podcast. I think it works really well. And then we'll, we'll <laughs> all just, right, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, because it's for the private podcast audience only. Okay. Uh, welcome back, y'all, by the way. Uh, if you got any more questions in the Patreon a live stream chat, we'll get to some more of those. Professor Sean, you had a question that I thought was interesting. Before we get into our Talk aboutable segment. What do you got for us? Yeah, I was wondering if uh, when writing, especially when writing fiction, if you ever feel your identity dissolve. Yes, I, I think it's the same for writing fiction and nonfiction for me. Anytime writing is going really well, and the colloquial terms might be flow state or a state of no mind, a meditative state, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, I mm-hmm. don't care. But there is this sense of the ego death there as well. It's not even the sense, it just dissolves in a way. There are three times where I experience this. One is when writing and writing is going well. Quite often when I'm writing and it's just a slog, then no, it does. It feels like I'm in my way. Mm. Do you get that, Sean? Yeah, I think so. When I, when I get into a good flow state with writing, especially if I'm writing for a good two, three, four hours, I it'll take me hours to come back to myself even mm-hmm. after I stop writing to feel like I'm me again, like I'm not there with the characters, like I'm not the narrator, like I'm not whatever is telling the story. Yeah, in a way, it's sort of like that psychedelic experience that you would get from ketamine or something else, but without the dramatic, you still have the concepts of the world there. You know you're sitting at a desk or whatever. And I think about that when it's going really, really well, there is no self. There is no ego. The words are just sort of, it's almost like they're being transmitted through you, which sounds almost cliche to say. Yeah. But it does feel that way. And I know that when I played basketball as a teen, there were times where you were in that flow state and it just feels like everything. And you see it now if you watch a basketball game and and they're, someone's really on, mm-hmm. it's almost like they don't exist, mm-hmm. right? Right. I, the other two times I, I recognize, one's during sex, when sex is going really well, mm-hmm. or third is like when I'm in the ocean. I've noticed mm. that when I'm in the ocean, I'm just jumping into the waves. I'm not surfing or doing... I, I see the appeal of surfing because of this. I mm-hmm. go to the ocean quite frequently and I will just go jump into the waves for 20 minutes and there's a kind of ego death there. Yeah. The loss of self. I got to teach you how to do body surfing. Yeah. It's so much fun, dude. I, I showed you, I seen the video of Ella recently, just this week. She, oh, yeah. We were, so we were walking around the neighborhood and someone was just, our neighborhood is awesome for one or a bunch of reasons. One main reason, it's a super blue collar neighborhood that we live in. And instead of donating our stuff to Goodwill, people just put their stuff on the curb in a free box and it just says free on it. And so you get to pick up whatever you want. And I mean, anytime I set something out, someone comes by and picks it up mm-hmm. within a day, sometimes within minutes. Yeah. And so I'm not using this anymore. Someone else can. Prime example of this, Ella and I were walking around the neighborhood and there was someone had these free skateboards. They had mm. three of them. One of them what? was missing its wheels. Mm. The other two were, looked like they're really high-end, good skateboards. They're just not using them anymore. And so she tried them out. She picked the one she wanted and she brought it home. She's pretty good at surfing. Uh, She just learned last year. 
but she the first time she got on it, I filmed it. And she can ride a skateboard. And she's like, I'm not doing that well. I'm like, you're doing better than most people have been riding for months. So that was legit her first time, yes. the, the video you sent me. Yeah. Yeah, she's doing great. <laughs> she's doing great. E- and, even though she's goofy-footed, we won't hold that against her. I'm <laughs> goofy-footed. What is goofy-footed? No, I'm goofy-footed. Oh, you're goofy-footed, gotcha. I, I, it's funny because um, I was doing voice dictation, uh, responding to your text, and I was going to ask uh, if she left-handed, and then Mariah pointed out to me that that's not always the case with goofy-footed folks. Right. But yeah, anyway. Yeah, and so what I like about that, she didn't have any pre-existing concept of here's how skateboarding should be, right? Yeah. And so she just got on it and rode it, you know, kicked and pushed and mm-hmm. coasted, like, Lupe Fiasco might say. Um, <laughs> and so we... Shout out to the Gen Z's. <laughs> Dude, it, so what did she want? She wanted to know how to kick better. Is that what... Yeah, she okay. was... She said Ryan could come up and teach me how to, uh, how to kick, kick it. better. How to kick it, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, he could teach can you how I to kick, kick it. Can I kick it? Yes, I can. Can I kick it? Shout out to the Gen X's. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do some talk about y'all. Uh, this one is a video... Family heirlooms are usually a burden. Ryan, I think you might have sent me this video. Let's mm. take a look. You like that china in here? Well, good, because it's going to be all yours when I'm gone. Great, great, great grandma's ring. There's actually three of them, one for each of you guys. So we have a lot of guests at our house right now, but this seemed like the appropriate time to tell you that when I die, this massive armoire in here, it's going to be all yours. It was your great aunt Jean's. It's 100% wood. They don't make them like this anymore. I got some pretty <laughs> decent shirts in here. Let me show you this so you know where it is in case something happens. Ancient artifact. I got it appraised in 2000. 13. You need to hang on to it. It's going to be worth a lot of money one day. What do you mean you don't want it? Toss it? No. What? Damn it, Timmy. Sell it? No. Gosh. Keep it in the family. Putting it back in here for now, though. (laughs) Oh, my my goodness, man. Keep the clutter in the family. Oh, my God. Here's what's fascinating about a video like this. It goes to show you that all the things you think are important, they're important to you, Mm -hmm. but they're not intrinsically important to others. The -hmm. only problem is when you think they should also be important to someone else. Now, it might be true. There's some family heirloom that you want to pass down and someone really wants you to pass it down to them. Mm. But quite often, you're holding on to things that are simply going to be a burden to other people. 100%, man. This makes me think of our lightning round question, but it's the obverse. So the lightning round question was, hey, I live a minimalist life. No one else around me is inspired to do it. And the obverse is, um, I have all this stuff that I find value in, but no one else around me finds value in it. Why don't you like it? (laughs) Right. It reminds me when I go to a concert sometimes, the worst part of a concert experience for me is going with other people. Not because there are other people there that I don't know, but there are people there that I do know. Mm. I will constantly look over and say, are they enjoying this? Because if so, I'll give myself permission to enjoy it. And that's what this video is saying to some extent is like, I'm holding on to this, even though it's making me miserable, I'm uh, sacrificing for your joy. Mm. Guess what? No, you're not. No one wants those burdens anyway. This is for your future. That's going to be worth something one day. What Mm. a like... What a horrible thing to thrust on a, 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 a child. Yeah. Yeah. I have all this stuff and it's going to be worth something someday. So you need to hold on to it until it finally becomes worth something. There are some things that certainly, there are exceptions to this, right? Yes. But by and large, like we're just holding on to a bunch of crap, right? Right. And if someone else wants your crap, by the way, it's all crap. 
ultimately, sure. is all crap on, to somebody. Yeah. It could be a giant diamond ring, but you bring that to the Hadza in Tanzania. Yeah. Why are you getting giving me this junk? I don't want it, mm-hmm. right? And so it is crap to someone. I remember we had Jeanette McCurdy on the podcast the second time, and she was like, I, I, I couldn't, I didn't do a great job explaining this at the time, but she's like, I'm just afraid to write because what if it's trash? Mm. I said, well, it is trash. Yeah, the, the look on her face was like, it is? <laughs> <laughs> no, and she wrote this amazing book. Yeah. But yeah. my point is, it's always going to be trash to someone. Right. And so what if it's trash to someone is a terrible reason to not do something but also, what if it's a treasure to someone else is a terrible reason to hold on to something? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Got another talk aboutable for you here. Things mean nothing, Ryan. <laughs> and happiness costs nothing. Mm. Let's take a look at this video with Marlon Waynes. How many cars I own? Two. I have a Tesla and I have an old ass Range Rover. I'm not a flossy dude. I have one ass. Only reason why I got two cars is... Range Rover was the first car I bought when I made money. Yeah, yeah. And I, it reminds me of that youth of of trying to hunger. Yeah, and get wanting that want that mm-hmm. thing. And I realized once I had that thing, that thing means nothing. Mm-hmm. And then I lease my other car. Those things mean nothing. These things of that you think are valuable, money, watches, they mean nothing. Happy costs nothing. Mm-hmm. Success is what you work toward every day. There is no mountain no top of the mountain just keep climbing oh Mm. that's so good man the things mean nothing yeah unfortunately it often takes getting the thing that you thought meant so much to realize that thing that you thought meant so much means nothing Mm. there's a quote in our first film minimalism which Mm -hmm. is coming out on youtube on sunday june 18th yeah yeah there's a quote from that film from Jim Carrey. And Jim Carrey said, I wish everyone could become rich and famous so they would see it's not the point of life. Yeah. And at first, people were like, yeah, it's easy for him to say he's rich and famous. And what Joshua Becker said in the film is, yeah, but who better to say it? You don't want someone who is making $24,000 a year saying, and they've never been successful in a monetary or materialist sense yeah. to say, materialism is not the point of happening because they don't know, right? Right. But Jim Carrey got it all and realized like, oh, this isn't what's doing it for me. Or as Marlon Wayne said, I almost called him Sean Waynes, or maybe it's uh, Keenan Ivory Waynes, all the Waynes brothers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was Marlon. Who yeah. knows? Yeah. But um, what, what he realized is I've got only one ass. Uh, Frank, the minimalist architect in our first film, he said, you know, if you aren't intentional about the life that you build, Mm. you'll end up in a home that has three dining tables. He said, you have to work pretty hard to eat one meal at three different dining tables. I do not want to go to that house for dinner. (laughs) 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 It seems very chaotic. Oh, man. Well, what's interesting is like the, the stuff... The success, which um, that's a whole podcast on its own, just talking about what success is. But these trinkets of success, this is all um, symptoms of hard work. A Super Bowl trophy, a Super Bowl ring, like that is a symptom 
of very hard work. Yes. And what what I used to do is I looked at the symptoms thinking that that is what brought the contentment and happiness and undermining the hard work that went into those things. Right, because you could go steal the Super Bowl trophy. It doesn't mean that you've won the Super Bowl. Yeah. Mm. You think I could go steal it though? <laughs> you hear, I heard Putin did that to someone's ring. Oh, who yeah. was that? Was I it forget who it was. The but... owner of the uh, the Patriots. What's his name? Oh, Belichick. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think it was one of his rings. Yeah. So that's a funny story. Yeah. He was like, let me see that ring. Uh-huh. Can I try it on? Putin tries it on and then literally turns around and walks away and like Putin's Secret Service like standing in front of him. <laughs> and he's like, but mine, they're like, <laughs> this belongs to us now. Yeah. And oh so I guess goodness. what we're saying here is uh, Putin has won a Super Bowl. That's <laughs> <laughs> not a man I want to disagree with. Oh my goodness. Speaking of disagreements, Ryan, a few episodes ago, I've been saving this because TK isn't here today, although uh, I thought it'd be an interesting conversation to have mm-hmm. with him, but I think it'd be even more interesting without him. Mm. We had a disagreement we couldn't get past. We just got stuck in the mud. Mm. I read a more about less segment. It was, I think, a week or two after the episode we did about monogamy and non-monogamy. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, I'm and, glad you're bringing this up. And I read this article uh, from Dr. Christopher Ryan where he essentially said that monogamy, while it's totally fine, is not the natural human state. We evolved to be non-monogamous. And at first, I think you had a real problem with it because what we often do, our what our culture has done is it conflates natural as good mm-hmm. and moral and right and unnatural as bad or shouldn't do or whatever. Mm. And so I, after that, I went home and I made a list. I've just been saving it for, I guess, a few months now of some other things that are not natural, AKA they are not evolutionarily consistent. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anyone would say these things are bad or we shouldn't have them. I think the first thing that is not natural is housing. Mm. We all live in a house, but that is definitely not natural. We do not evolve to be in houses. And I would even make an argument that many of the things we do in homes are preventing us from living the most healthful lives for sure. Yeah. But we all want to live in a home for the most part. I'm sure there's a few exceptions there. Yeah. Our friend Rich Roll has a really nice house, but sleeps outside. Yes. And so he is not homeless. He's home full, as yes. Colin Wright says. Yes, exactly. In um, our first documentary that's available on YouTube <laughs> yes, soon. June 18th. <laughs> and um, so... Living in a house is not natural. Sure. It is an unnatural state. Totally agree. I'm totally fine with that unnatural state. I would prefer it than the alternative. Yes. But it also doesn't mean that I am now, I imprison myself in my home. I never go outside and walk in the sun, et cetera. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Here's another one for you. And this one might actually Mm. surprise you. So most evolutionary biologists would tell you that introversion is not natural. Oh, right. Because there's a survival thing with extroverts. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I was talking to um, Chris Kelly about this, who we've mm-hmm. on the podcast before, and he believes that there's no such thing as introverts. We've been acculturated to become introverts over many generations. And maybe yeah. we've even evolved over the last 20,000 years or so to become more introverted. Yeah. But the, in nature, pre-agricultural revolution, to be an introvert was to die, essentially. Yeah. To be cast out from society and not to be excluded from your tribe yeah. meant you were going to die. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Because you relied on them. And so yeah. everyone was some level of extrovert at some point. Had to be. 
I am an extreme intro. I can't even imagine trying to be extroverted at this point. <laughs> and you do a damn good job though. <laughs> Come on, you're very socially competent. Which mm-hmm. which is why um, you know, you're not just surviving, but you're thriving. You know? Well, I think what happens quite often is we conflate uh, social incompetence within introversion and vice right. versa. I know a lot of extroverts who are really socially incompetent. Oh, yeah, I know one. I, he, yeah, he's got two big thumbs. He's they're, <laughs> they're, they're pointing to me. <laughs> not all the time, but sometimes I feel that way. <laughs> Here's another one that is not natural. Nonviolence. Mm. Violence is the natural state. And mm. in fact, when you ran across someone who was not part of your tribe in nature, yeah, well, your the natural state was to be violent toward that other person. It's interesting because um, on that, it's almost like if you believe in the Adam and Eve story, then nonviolence is the natural state. Mm. And then we've evolved through imperfection to be, you know, violence to be the natural state. Anyway. Anyway. So, all right. So can I give you my two cents? Yes. Okay. Love to hear it. So I got two more examples though, too. Go for it. Do you use your two examples? Yeah, real quick. Cities are definitely not natural. We all know that, right? Yeah. yeah. And yet we're here in this big, beautiful city right now. Mm-hmm. And then counting calories, certainly not natural, right? <laughs> right. Uh, we, but everyone know. I mean, our ancestors had no idea what a calorie was. A calorie is just a measurement of how quick something burns. Yeah. Now, we don't actually burn calories in our body either, but it is a measurement uh, that we can use. It may not necessarily be the best measurement or the most accurate measurement, but that is not something that is natural as well. And I think most yeah. people don't go around saying, hey, that's so unnatural of you to count your calories or to talk about calories, right? Yeah, yeah. Eating sugar. Eating processed sugar is not a natural state. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think pretty much anyone would argue that's probably not great for you, though. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, Yeah. No, I'm glad you brought this up because I really was having a hard time articulating um, why why I was disagreeing with this article, which I just want to emphasize, I love Dr. Christopher Ryan and I love his work. Mm -hmm. And what I like about his work is that he gives people... Um, permission to be whoever they are when it comes to their sexuality. Yes. And that's really important. Including being strictly monogamous. Yeah. Loves that. Loves someone who's poly with 17 boyfriends as well. Yeah, it is the, <clears throat> it's the, it's the natural state piece is where I really f- um, just felt like it might have made someone look in the mirror and be like, oh, like mm-hmm. I'm, there's something wrong with me because I'm not natural. Yeah. And yeah. and when I think about like I wish the one example I wish I would have used when we had that conversation is technically, you know, heterosexuality is the default state. It That's is right. it is the natural state. That's correct. And uh if it wasn't, then we wouldn't populate like we you know, populate the earth like we have been. Yeah. But I would never I would never um m- you know, make someone feel bad if they weren't heterosexual, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I don't think it was his intent. And it's someone could certainly feel bad from that article. I, I'm not saying, I, obviously, it, we, we know him well enough that that's not his intent at all, Yeah, was to make anyone feel bad about of it. Of course not. And that's why I wanted to bring up these other examples. Like, yeah. don't feel bad if you're doing something that is not natural. If you live in a city, that's not natural. If yeah. you're an introvert, that's not natural. I'm an introvert. That is not natural, but I'm totally fine with being an introvert. And I don't need to default to the natural state of extroversion, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, man. I think whatever your preference is, monogamy, non-monogamy, heterosexuality, non-heterosexuality, um, 
whatever you are, that is your natural state. Yeah, and, and, and by and the that, way, that can change over time too. It absolutely can. And and like the 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 way that I hear that sentence when it was read, which by the way, just to preface it even more, um, the sentence before that said, or the the preface, the literal preface uh, before he talked about um, what you brought up, he said, uh, just like um, you know, we're all naturally omnivores. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you choose to be vegetarian, like that's okay, but just know that like you're going against nature. And that is where that, that is where I was kind of, um, wanting to defend people who felt naturally monogamous, Mm -hmm. who, um, who, uh, yeah, just wake up and they're like, Hey, I'm, I don't want to be with more than one person. Like, I just want to have a partner and like rule the world with that partner or rule our world with that partner. I just don't want to ever tell anyone like, Hey, uh, it's cool that you're doing this, but just know that you're fighting nature. Right. You know, his, his argument was for people who were trying to say that, who, who are prescriptive about anything, monogamy Mm. or non-monogamy that like, Hey, whatever the natural state is, it's okay to not be natural. Just like it's okay to be a vegetarian. Yeah. Even if that's not the natural state, it's totally okay. And I think that's where we all agree here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, to a large extent, Mahalik, um, professor Sean. So, um, he was kind of, well, actually, am I missing anything? Let me just ask that. Is there anything else that I can say to, to kind of help Josh or anyone listening to this, see my perspective? What am I missing? One thing that comes to mind is that one could argue that things like cities are evolutionarily consistent Mm. and that we have evolved such that we now build cities. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, oh, interesting. Yeah. So depending on where we're at in the evolution process, Mm -hmm. something could be natural a century ago and then now be unnatural a century later. That's not how evolution works, but uh, well, maybe um, over yeah. a long enough period of time. We, we No, we haven't yeah, evolved century, to, to build cities over the course of... Uh, evolution works over you know, 10,000, 20,000, 40,000, 100,000 year periods. Yeah, you're right. It was a bad example. But. No, I, I see what you're saying, though. Yeah. And by the way, there are large populations who survive on vegetarian foods, even though that's not the default human state. It doesn't mean that it's bad or wrong. And that's ultimately why I wanted to bring it up is I wanted to divorce natural and unnatural because violence is natural. It is now. Yeah. Right. Well, no, I'm saying it's always been, it's been natural, right? Yeah. And we could say we've, we can use the word evolved, like in a colloquial sense, like we've evolved away from it, even though we haven't. I mean, you, you go see any room of 17-year-old boys and they're ready to beat you up. You remember how we used to, we were friends and we would beat each other up. Yes. <laughs> and, and it doesn't, to, it, just because I'm nonviolent and that's yeah. not natural, mm. that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Yeah. Natural and unnatural are not good or bad. It's yeah. just a description. And so if someone tells you what you're doing is not natural, here's what you can say. Yeah, thanks. I've right. made this decision. Yeah. Yeah, I just, yeah, like if anything, I'd want people to just hear that like, hey, look, it doesn't matter monogamy or non-monogamy, whatever your preference is, you're not fighting nature. If you're truly going with what your preference is, that is what your preference is naturally. Um, And that's it. Yeah, and you're allowed to have those preferences. Your preferences are allowed to change as Mm -hmm, well. mm -hmm. Now, you can't want what you want, Mm. as Schopenhauer talks about, right? Like, Mm, you you don't get to pick your desires. Like, I would really like to enjoy the taste of oysters, (laughs) 
but I don't. And I can't decide whether or not I enjoy oysters, right? I feel so bad about the Sydney experience. Can I interrupt you to tell that story real quick? Go for it. So uh, we sit down with our... Uh, I hope it involves Sydney Sweeney. <laughs> no, no, no. This is the different Sydney story. Oh, okay. No. We're in Sydney, Australia. Um, we are sitting down for lunch with our tour manager. Uh, his name is Simon. He is the quintessential like rock and roll tour manager. And I could tell many stories just about him. Like he's just got the long hair and he's he he has the look. Yes. Um. Anyway, very, very, very stereotypical. We're sitting down with him. Uh, it's it's uh, Mariah. Um, it's uh, I think podcast Sean was there. And then Josh and Bex and the uh, me and Mariah and Simon order oysters and we eat these things and they are like some of the tastiest oysters we have ever eaten. And Josh, who doesn't like oysters, but has that desire, like, I really do want to like oysters, like, just give me a good oyster. I'm like, dude, th- these are the oysters. And he's kind of hem hawing, like, ah, you know, you know, I'll think about it, whatever. Uh, so the next day, the very next day, we go back to this restaurant and Josh and Bex are like, all right, we're going to do it. We're going to try the oysters. And we got them. And dude, they were like, they were not nearly as good as what they were the day before. So really oh. it just solidified how much Josh hates oysters. And I'm so sorry for setting you up like that, man. <laughs> oh, shoot. We've got a minimalist home tour here. This is number 40. We're pivoting a little bit here. Mm. This is not a home. We're going outside the home for a moment. This is from our friends over at Minimalissimo. Carl over there, he curated this. We'll throw a couple of different pictures on the on the screen here. The first one is oh, wow. this beautiful coffee shop. So this is a coffee shop. This is called Choose Coffee, C-H-O-O-Z-E mm. Coffee. And um, beautiful minimalist interior design project by a company called ID Inc. Uh, for this flagship store for Choose Coffee. It's in Tokyo. And they use decaf beans that are made from high-quality specialty coffee. It's a coffee brand that offers a new experience of choosing the amount of caffeine you want in your coffee. Oh, Japan. They are... Whatever... Yes, whatever whatever (laughs) humans create, Japanese people, like, will take it and and just, like, make it a million times better. It's it's fascinating you say that because... um, the shop is pristine, mm. and yet they're, it's not completely stark because they use these little pops of color. You'll notice the bags, if you just listen to the audio experience <sighs> here, the bags have three different colors. And so it's like you have a no caffeine option, you have a, a some caffeine option, you have full caffeine options as well. I think we have one more photo what, from that experience. What's blown my mind about this photo is that vent uh-huh. looks like art to me. Yes. Yeah. It's it's all intentional. Even the vent is it's intentional. Yeah. yeah. Well, it reminds me. I was talking to Christian, the minimalist architects downstairs. Uh, they run a design house here mm. in LA called Design Opera, and most people don't have the eye for aesthetics that I have. But most people, almost no one, has the eye for aesthetics they have. Oh my goodness! Yeah. And so when you walk past their office, no one ever points out that it's the most beautiful office space in this entire building. Mm. And it's just these subtle things. Their windows are slightly different. Their op- the opening to the door is slightly different. It's the steel desks that they have. It's the lamps, the lighting that they have, the curtains that they have. It's all just slightly different. It's yeah. this attention to detail. Even the details are part of the art. It's almost like they're do- you're doing it right when someone walks into a room and they're like, I really love this space. I don't know why. Yes. yes. Yeah. 
And I see that with this coffee shop here. Here is the front of the shop. And is you it see negative negative C. Yeah, so it's Choose Coffee. So oh, they okay. have that mint green logo there. And so they don't use no color. It's not completely monochrome, but the mm. color really pops among the monochrome space. There's a, a small seating area there, a concrete bench, and it is aggressively simple, but it feels alive through these subtle uses of color. Dude, in a way, this is like a modern, like, is it uh, Rockwell? Norman yeah. Rockwell who does like the, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of the Art Deco paintings and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. This feels like a modern modern day, like, yeah, Rockwell. Yeah, I can see this because you're looking into like like that cafe scene where you're looking into the cafe, except here yeah. it's a Tokyo coffee shop. Yeah. If you sign up for the, if you're on the video version of the podcast, then we send these to you every Friday in your inbox. We send you a photo tour. Yeah. It could be a listener's home as well. So you can send us your home tour mm. podcast at theminimalists.com. Let's check back in with the Patreon live stream. Any questions for us, Alabama? Yeah, we have a question here from Julie. A friend of mine will soon be moving into a rental flat that is fully furnished. The problem is she dislikes the furniture. How does she live there joyfully without buying new furniture and compromising her minimalist principles? This happened to me recently. I have one or two nights a week, I rent a friend's back house here in West Hollywood Mm -hmm. and I will stay there and um, it doesn't have my furniture in it and it doesn't feel like me. It doesn't have my artwork on the walls and I just treat it like it's a hotel because I recognize how temporary the space is. Now, if you want a space with some more permanence, the question I would ask myself is what, what can I do to make this space feel like home? You'll remember in our second book, Ryan, Everything That Remains, the one thing I would move around from house to house to house was that red phone. Yeah. I don't have the red phone anymore, but Mm. for a long period of time, wherever I was, I would have that red phone and that meant I was home. What is your red phone? Yeah. Makes me think uh, we get asked the question a lot, like, what have you gotten rid of that you needed to go out and buy again? And the phone mm-hmm. is one of those things where you finally like, not even finally, I mean, it was just something that you walked away from. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you moved into uh, a condo or an apartment with uh, with Bax here in LA. And all of a sudden you needed a phone because they have this antiquated <laughs> system in the lobby when uh, guests come over. So you had to go and like, buy another phone. Yep. But then I got rid of it when I left that space. I was prepared to walk away from it. One more question, Alabama. This one comes from Yaman. I've grown to extremely dislike the teamwork culture because I see one or two people in a group end up bearing the weight of the assignment. Mm. The self-sufficient person in me now lives by the thought of, if you don't want it bad enough for yourself, you're not going to want it bad enough for a group. Any thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a disempowering story as well. I totally get it because what you're really saying here, Yaman, is if someone doesn't want the same exact thing that I want, then it's not going to serve what I want. Yeah. But obviously, I think there's a great example here. When we do a podcast and there are six, seven, eight people in this room, everyone has a specific task that they're working on. I mean, right mm-hmm. now, Danny is taking photos for thumbnails as we're talking. He's actually snapping shots of Ryan right now, nodding his head at me. <laughs> and and Danny's doing that specifically. He has a specific task. The problem, you're right. If you're just, remember doing group work back in high school? Oh, I remember doing it in college and... 
getting the brunt of yeah. the group work. Because generally there isn't a, uh, a specific task that you must do. Mm-hmm. And then all of the pieces form like Voltron to form something bigger mm-hmm. than what you yourself are working on. And I, I actually really resonate with you, Mom, because it is tempting to me to be like, I'll just do it all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And because that's the only way it can get done exactly the way I want to do it. But the truth is I can't do it all if I want to do everything that I want to do. And so I have to trust Ryan to do what he does, mm-hmm. TK to do what he does, Jordan, Sean, Podcast Sean, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, the, everyone from the team. Post-production <laughs> Peter. When we're working on a film, it's Chris and Jacob and Evan and whoever we're working with there. Or if we're doing PR and it's Sarah. Or if we're doing some book thing with Mark. And mm. all of a sudden, these other people play their role. And so yeah. who do you trust to do something better than how you can do it? Because I can't be a, a literary agent as good as Mark, our literary agent. Yeah, I can't be an accountant as good as Alan. I can't be a bookkeeper as good as Angel. I can't be a voiceover person who's as angelic as Malabama. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I... Uh... I believe in you so much, Melbourne. I actually think you could do all those things. <laughs> I mean, it would drive you crazy. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's about it's another way to think about what, what are some things you don't want to do, but other people do want to do. Yeah. Alan, our CPA, wants to be a CPA. Right. Yeah. He wants to do that. I don't want to do it. Right. And that's when teamwork actually works because I agree, there actually is no such thing as a team. There are individual contributors. And when you look at them from a distance, it appears to be a team. But Mm. when you watch even a basketball game, which is like the ultimate team sport, it's not five people who are shooting the ball at once. There's one person who passes the ball Mm. and then another person who's dribbling the ball and then they pass. It's individual contributions that in the aggregate become a team contribution. Yeah, I feel like in, in school, high school, college, whatever, when you have these group projects that teachers assign, they should really um, teach how to do and manage a group project. Yeah. yeah. Because the problem is, is like they they say, all right, you five or four, whatever, you people are together, you students are together, um, go ahead and make this thing happen. But they, no one knows how to like divvy up the work and no one knows who to emerge as the leader, if, even if there needs to be a leader. Yeah. Um, but yeah, any teachers out there, if you're giving out group assignments, um, maybe uh, teach the group how to divvy up the work because that's... Yeah, that would be a great, uh, I would have avoided a lot of uh, resentment and and frustration in college because I am the one who would um, pick it up a lot of the times. That's right. Because I'm like, it's my, it's not because like, it was mostly like papers and it wasn't because I'm like, oh, I'm a better writer than all of you, um, which I would posit that I was probably the worst writer on, you know, on on the teams that I was on. I did it because I was so motivated to get that grade. I'm like, oh, this is going to affect my grade and I care about my grade. So I'm going to go ahead and do what I can and pick up all this slack so I can get a good grade. Yeah. And by the way, LeBron James has to do more work than the rest of his team members Mm -hmm. in order for them to get the outcome that they want to get. And he's like, well, I'm just going to work at the same level as everyone else on my team. He wouldn't be LeBron James either. Mm -hmm. LeBron James! (laughs) (laughs) More about less. Mm. little segment we do is a jump off point for discussion here. Let's read some more about less. This week's article comes from our good friend, Dr. Nicole LaPera, and it's not really an article. It is a tweet storm that she tweeted over several tweets. Malabama, can you read this for us? Absolutely. How codependency shows up. Number one, you really need a day to yourself? 
but your friend asks to do something, you say yes because you fear saying no. Number two, you default to whatever your partner wants to do because you struggle to assert your own needs. Number three, your sister calls you with issues with her boyfriend without awareness of what you're dealing with in your own life. Mm. Number four, your partner continues harmful or hurtful behavior and you keep trying to get them to change at the cost of your own mental health. Number five, your mom guilts you every time you make plans that don't include her. So you invite her even though you don't want to. Number six, your parents expect you to make all efforts to call and see them and make no effort to do the same. Healthy relationships don't require you to abandon yourself and mm. own your needs or and your own needs. Healthy relationships encourage you to take care of yourself, to assert your limits, and will not make you walk on eggshells out of fear of someone's reaction. She goes on to say how to break free of codependency. Number one, start setting boundaries. Practice setting clear limits. I can't do that right now. Now isn't a good time for me. I need some space to think that through. I can come, but can't stay over. Number two, get to know yourself. Take some time to reflect on who you are, what your own values are, and what you desire in your relationships. Connect back to yourself and prioritize your own wellness. Number three, rewire the guilt. People with codependency patterns feel chronic guilt. When you start taking care of yourself and setting limits, you will feel guilty. That's okay. Remind yourself it's healthy to take care of you. Soon, you'll feel more confident. Number four, assert yourself. Codependent people fear their needs make them a burden, difficult or too much. The truth is, Healthy people will respect and attempt to meet your needs. Mm. Start communicating what you need and assert yourself when you're uncomfortable. Number five, allow people to manage their own problems. Give people the space to work through their own emotions and find solutions for their own problems. Often, there's enabling within codependency that stunts people's ability to grow. You don't need to fix anyone. Man, that's, it feels like a self-contained thing and me commenting on it is going to ruin it because it seems so perfect, Yeah, but I'm going to ruin it. So here we go. <laughs> Dude, Dr. Dr. Nicola Perez, she's amazing. Yeah, yeah, we absolutely love you, Yeah, Nicole. Here's the few things that stood out to me that I just wanted to highlight. First and foremost, when she talks about guilt throughout this, especially when she mm. talks about rewiring the guilt, Realize, though, the obverse side of that is when people are trying to shame you or guilt you, they, they, they hand you, you should feel guilty for not doing this. Mm -hmm. That is a sign to create distance in that relationship. Mm. Anyone who wants you to feel guilty, guilty, yeah, that is not someone that I want to spend my time, even if you're doing something that you should feel guilty for, quote unquote, oh, should, right? Yeah. If they're trying to guilt you for it, that is not a loving relationship. It's a sign of an unhealthy mind. And in that tweet storm, she talked about like, hey, people who are healthy will support you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so the other thing that really stood out to me was this uh, second way to break free. Get to know yourself. Take some time to reflect on who you are, what your own values are. 
and what you desire in your relationships. Mm. I think quite often we get into a relationship. It'll be a friendship, a coworker relationship, uh, a monogamous relationship, a mm-hmm. marriage. We could be dating someone. Or nowadays, what do you kids call a situationship? <laughs> the Gen Zs are so afraid of commitment. Shout out to the Gen Zs. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what happens is we don't stop and say, what do I actually want from this relationship? Not what can I get from it, mm-hmm. but what do I want from this? Yeah. And then I think you even take it a step further than that. Why do I want that? Yeah. Why do I think I want the thing that I think I want in this relationship? And then finally, one last thing I, I just want to point out here, this last line. You don't need to fix anyone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't have to change anyone. You don't have to persuade anyone. You don't need to convince anyone. If you want to love the people in your life, you can see them for who they are, recognize the battles they're going through, the struggles they're going through, yeah. the impending doom that is happening in their life right now that feels so real to them. And it's hard to even empathize with them because they're so in it, in the moment. And you have the desire, I can just swoop in and fix it for you. Okay. Did they ask you to fix it? Mm. Or are you just coming in and rearranging the furniture? Mm. Mm, That's so good. I want to print Mm. this out and put it on my bathroom mirror. Look at it every day. (laughs) I kind of feel attacked with this uh, tweet storm. Alabama was saying, I was texting Josh from downstairs going, first of all, I feel called out. Second of all, how much of this are we going to go into? (laughs) First off, who do you think you are? How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) When you said you felt called out in Alabama, what did you feel? Oh my gosh. It is, I, I don't even know where to begin. Just the first tweet, I went, oh, this is about me. It's not about me, but this is about me. Codependency is a huge thing I struggle with as a people pleaser. Mm. And it's so hard to try to reconcile this identity of myself that is someone who's always there for people, always willing to help. I am the helper and it's very dangerous. And seeing this, it feels actionable and attainable where I have a way out. Mm. I don't have to just sell my soul to make other people happy. And it was a good reminder of that. Yeah. There was a TikTok we did. I think it was from last week's episode, which by the way, I think is my favorite episode we've ever done. Episode 395. Mm. Mm. I just re-listened to it before it came out. And my gosh, it was such a good episode. But there was one line from that. I was just um, waxing poetic for a moment. And I talked about how your prison is built with people-pleasing shaped bricks. Yes. And I don't even remember saying it. I was watching the video and I'm Mm -hmm. like, yeah, yeah. And I'm talking to the weakest version of me. I'm not telling that to you and to you and to you. I'm saying that to the weakest version of me. Yeah. That whenever I attempt, whenever I'm doing whatever I do just to please other people, and usually it's sacrificing my own sanity or my own well-being in the process, Mm. I'm constructing a prison with one little people-pleasing sized brick at a time. Mm. Oh my goodness, man. That is, uh, yeah. You know, I will say Malabama, I've never met anyone who likes to, um, people please as much as, as, as Malabama. And that's not an insult. That is, I can't tell. I want to no, say thank me. you also. I know. It's, okay. <laughs> it's usually, it's usually like a pejorative, but here's what I'll say is like, I know that I feel weird having people wait on me. Um, 
some of my favorite restaurants are, it's like where you sit down and people wait on you. Mm -hmm. And I hate that. Like, I don't like being served like that. Interesting. So asking you like, oh, hey, do you mind filling up my water? Do you mind like filling up my cup? Whatever it is. um, That feels weird to me. because That's second nature to me. Because I got two legs. Yes. And I have actually started to make room for allowing you to do that. I and appreciate that. Yeah, no worries. And thanks for teaching me this lesson because it's an important <laughs> lesson for me because some people just like to people please. Yeah. But the thing is, is like you can be a people pleaser, but not care about what the people you please think. Right. Yes. And so you do, going out of your way to um, do what you can for others, like that's for you. And um, it is for others, like too, don't get me wrong, but their reaction, that is not for you. Yeah. What were you talking about is being hyper considerate. And I think yeah. that's a little bit different from people pleasing. Now you can use these interchangeably, yeah. but when I make that distinction in my own life, I can consider you without the need to care about what your reaction is to mm. my action. Yeah, yes. right. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And and there are, you know, there's always exceptions. Like um, if I did something considering you and uh, you came to me and you were like, hey, I know that you did this to consider me, but here, here's my preference. Then like, you know, obviously I would listen to something like that. But, right. but if, but if, but if you came to me and you're like, oh, this isn't enough. And I would, and I felt like I was giving enough, then I would give myself permission to be like, oh, okay, sorry. He feels that way, but that's how he feels. That's not how I feel, which brings me to the next thing I wanted to say, which is like other people's codependencies that they have with you. is not necessarily your codependency. You don't have to take that on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. You know, because that can become Contagious, right? The codependency mm-hmm. becomes contagious. It requires two people to be codependent in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, both people are often codependent relationships. Both people are codependent. Yes. Sometimes it's just one person who's codependent in that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We'll check in one more time real quick. Any comments from our Patreon live stream, Alabama? We sure do. This comment comes from Chelsea. She says, my favorite answer to the question, who are you, is I'm learning every day. Ooh, I love that. Thank that's you, good. Chelsea. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Thanks, Chelsea. That's a good oh, one. That is solid. Yeah. For our added value segment this week, Ryan, do you remember this band, the Milk Carton Kids? I do. I saw this on uh, iTunes or yeah, on iTunes. Um, Ryan, I literally were listening to it yesterday. Okay. And um, uh, we're listening to it. I was in the mood for like something upbeat and like something, you know, to get me like dancing and like, you know, Mariah and I singing and being goofy. And we started playing this and like we were both like, Oh man, like this is gonna make me fall asleep. <laughs> and my literal, my next thought was, Milburn's gonna love this album. <laughs> so you're talking about their new album. Yeah, it's called "I Only See the Moon." But the song you hear playing in the background right now is probably their most famous song. It is a song from their 2011 album, which was called Prologue. This song is called Michigan. And it's really, I wanted to play this today because I thought it was perfect for this episode. It's a song about leaving the past in the rear view, no longer clinging to that past self, that past identity, and the struggle of that as well. So here's the lyric that really stands out to me. So when she calls, don't send her my way. When it hurts, you'll know it's the right thing. Mm. Because letting go hurts sometimes. Yeah, It's not always easy. It's not always joyous. It's not always pleasant yeah. in the moment when we're letting go. He said, Michigan's in the rear view now. And then he follows that up with the question, so what am I supposed to do now? <sighs> and that part of me, that identity that I used to cling to, that's in the rear view. Mm. So the question to ask is, What am I going to do now? Not because I'm supposed to by society, but what are the possibilities that are right here 
in front of me. Yeah. This is Michigan from the Milk Carton Kids. All right, that's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus and TK Coleman, may he rest in peace. Not dead. <laughs> no, no, he's he's, he's, he's at home now. He's yeah, resting. we're just hoping he's having some peaceful rest. Uh, come Jeez, on, wow, too soon, Mal. <laughs> Malabama, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, post-production Peter, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, please let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace. (laughs) (laughs) Yes! TK, come back. The clouds move over Pontiac skies Their silent thunder matches mine I know this feeling from long ago I wondered was it gone, but now I know So when she calls, don't send
Do now.